don't know much about history or about the last centuries. Don't know much about a fan's pop. Don't know much about the stoneware jug. But I do know about Rhenish Blue. And I know if I could share it with you, what a wonderful pot this could be. Don't know much about French treaties. Don't know much about nails, really. Don't know much about Fort Little. Don't know what Bar Shot is for. But I do know about Fort St. Louis. And if I tell you too what a wonderful pot this could be. Now I don't claim to be Charlie or Sir, but I'm trying to be. But maybe by being more Deetsian, baby, I could seriate this cemetery. Don't know much about history. Never met Nicola Denis. Don't know much about senores. Never found St. Blisses for. But I do know that I love you. And I know if you love me too, what a wonderful pot this could be. Sing with me, listener. But I do know that I love you. And I know if you love me too, what a wonderful pot this could be. Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I'm Gabe Reinick in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I'm joined, as I am every fortnight, by Ken Holyoke in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? I am doing well. Good. I see that it's not raining in your in your studio like it was when we spoke earlier. No, it is. Uh, the plumber has been here and uh, my wallet is drained. All right. <laughs> yeah. they, they are good for a wallet draining experience, aren't they? Yeah. But yeah, but but uh, it's nice to have the rain outside rather than inside. It would be nice uh, to have any kind of rain here, actually. It is dry as a bone in Alberta right now. Oh, is it? Yeah. So apparently like it's like, yeah, we, we've had hardly any rain. And apparently this is like uh, the grasshoppers may take over here. Um, oh. And uh, whatever the drought doesn't kill, the grasshoppers may eat. Oh, uh, you know, the, this is you've really sort of done the whole. Um, it's it's as if you've like moved to. We were watching this uh, David Attenborough. Uh, you know the yeah the the, the swarm of yeah the locust swarm yeah is that what Alberta's this is, like? This is what I'm picturing is going to happen here <laughs> in like a month or so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a guy I work with who's actually a grasshopper expert. I'm going to ask him about it. Or you know, is this our future? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good, good to know. Our, our grasshoppers out here have gotten trench foot this, okay. this June. Yes. So it's slightly it's, different. It's wet. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we, uh, are, as always, were sponsored by the APAMB. That's the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. But uh, in addition, you may recall that we put out a call. Um, we're particularly interested in 
um, organizations like the Valvani Scotch Company, if they wanted to send in a sponsorship, something like that. Um, yeah. But it's uh, it's not quite Valvani, um, but it's it's similar. It's in in the sense that it's a um, a, a real a real quality uh, single malt kind of product, and that is um, <laughs> Ecofor Ecofor Consulting, originally out of BC, uh, but now uh, all over Canada. Uh, has arranged for some very uh, exciting uh, swag uh, giveaways. Yeah, and and so I, the Trevor Dow, who works for Ego Four, um, and has has arranged for this, sent us a picture of the, of the giveaways, and and these include things um, like uh, what appears to be a waterproof backpack, um, some camouflage hats if you want to be invisible in the woods, and. Um, uh, I, what I think is particularly exciting is that Ecofor is using its own uh, monogrammed Marshalltown trowels, which yes, are, that which is, are... I, I'm kind of like, I was sort of hoping that we would get one. Well, I, this is one thing I don't know that Ecofor understood is that, is that we plan to take a little <laughs> bit off the top. That's how this, that's how I thought a sponsorship worked. <laughs> but does this mean we're a nonprofit? I think so. Yeah. Oh, we're, yeah. We're, we're true socialists. We're redistributing the wealth. That's uh... yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, like it is, you know, every night here on the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, we're basically inviting you to a potlatch that Ecofor is sponsoring. And when this is all done, Trevor is going to be the hereditary chief of the um, <laughs> New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, I think. But so the way this is going to work, um, we should say we've got a we've got a bunch of friends who are uh, high quality archaeologists who work for Ecofor, Trevor, um, Greg. Bunch of good guys out there, and whoa, Ken, you just you just rearranged what direction you were facing in the in the camera while I'm trying to do a prize read here. Oh, did it switch over? It did. Yeah, yeah. I just was surprised. Oh, okay. I, I can see all your baffling now. Um, oh, okay. There you and go. And anyway, so I think what we're gonna do is um, the way this works is you can listen back to our season one catalog. That's this. So that'd be all the episodes up until this one. And you may recall the bingo cards that uh, our friend Wally provided. What you do is you click on that link from Wally, make your bingo card, go back through. Um, and the first person, uh, uh, sorry, it's not the first person. Then you, what you can do is you either email us a finished bingo card. And where would they email that to, Ken? Uh, New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word, at gmail.com. So email us the finished pod, the finished bingo card or post it to Instagram with us tagged. And we will start entering you into draws for these three separate prize packs, which are again, compliments of Eco4 Consulting. So thank you very much, Eco4. Um, and I think we'll be doing the, the draws periodically throughout the summer. Is that right, Ken? Uh, yeah, I think that's the idea. Keep folks engaged. I'm just checking to see here because... I think for those of you who are not on Instagram, I believe that on one of the show notes, I think we linked to Wally's bingo card. But um, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to link it again eh? on the show notes for this episode. Perfect. So if you don't see them on your podcast provider, you can go to our website at rss.com slash uh, podcast slash nb archaeology and you'll find um uh you'll find the link to it there so or and if you're if you're looking for one uh shoot us an email to new brunswick archaeology at gmail.com and uh when i 
figure out a uh, uh, schedule to reply to all the people who I owe a reply to, uh, you will be one of the people that will get a bit bingo card to your inbox. So that's right. Um, and so again, we'll be we'll be drawing those periodically throughout the summer. And so uh, Ken, just while we're while we're talking about um, prizes, we still do not have a new name for this podcast. And you know we're reluctant to order the kind of sweet swag that Ecofor has. Until we have that kind of name, you know, I like you go to the conferences, Ecofork, you know, they pull up in a, you know, a branded Land Rover with the Ecofork kayaks on the top, you know, they hop out. I mean, I, it was, it was pretty wild. I think at the CAA's last, uh, a few months ago, uh, Trevor showed up to the, the conference dinner in an Ecofor, uh, smoking jacket, which just incredible. Um, yeah. custom made. Yeah. I think, yeah. It, I think it was, uh, Probably, probably velvet. Trevor's kind of a velvety sort of guy. Yep. Yep. Um, but uh, but since we're not there yet, we still need a new name for this podcast. And so, if Ken, if one of our listeners had a new name for this podcast, uh, where would they email it to? Sorry, we might, <laughs> might have to wind <laughs> back there. I I chopped my uh, karate chopped my uh, my headphones <laughs> off of the uh, the microphone. <laughs> You, you, that, that was Ken's frustration, listener, at at knowing that we still do not have um, our branded smoking jackets or opera exactly, slippers. exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm furious about it. But the uh, <laughs> the person who does suggest a, a new name for us, um, this not for us for the show for the show for the show. Yes, yeah, the, yeah. The new, yeah, new name for the show. <laughs> um, this week's prize pack is called uh, "The Wars of Others Brought to Your Shores Tour." Um, and, uh, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a drive, a, a sort of cruise around the Maritimes, visiting some of the, uh, famous historic sites that we're going to be talking about this afternoon. And so, um, if you can get yourself to St. John, New Brunswick, um, you, Gabe and I will meet you at the airport. I don't know if it's got a name, but the St. John airport, it's small. You can it might need a name only... too. There might be a prize if you rename the St. John airport. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Um, we'll, we'll be picking you up in a Ford Mustang GT convertible, which I think Gabe actually knows a little bit about driving around in. I do. Um, yeah. and, uh, we'll be driving in luxury on a personalized tour of the defensive network, uh, St. John, uh, Harbor defensive network, uh, throughout the city. We'll visit some of these spots. We'll, uh, end the day at the Car Carlton Martello tower national historic site. Um, this was built for the War of 1812, but finished in time to not be used for those purposes, um, uh, 1815, after the war ended, um, and uh, after which we'll be uh, enjoy a whiskey tasting uh, in the Uptown, which is downtown, but it's not called the downtown, it's called the Uptown, mm -hmm. at a whiskey bar called Hopscotch. Um, oh, very after nice. which, After which we're going to board the Fundy Rose and go across the Bay of Fundy, landing in Digby Harbor, Nova Scotia. After we indulge on a seaside scallop dinner, we're going to continue our journey through what was once the capital region of Acadie, cruising along the Evangeline Trail, visiting Fort Anne National Historic Site in Annapolis Royal, and then heading over to Port Royal National Historic Site. You can see there's a theme to all these National Historic there, Sites. Yeah, there is. Before heading to the South Shore, to the lands of the Loyalist, where we'll take in one of the Maritime's finest museums, the Rossignol Cultural Center. <laughs> Dinner will be at Lane's Privateer Inn and Restaurant, where we'll be watched by a painting that looks shockingly like David Black. <laughs> and accommodations for our last night on the road will be in a reproduction blockhouse at the Rossignol Cultural Center, taking in the mystery and intrigue of being a redcoat garrisoned in British North America. Well, and, that's a fantastic uh, prize. 
Yeah, that is. And then we'll we'll fly you home from Halifax Stanfield International Airport. Oh, okay. Stanfield International. The uh the uh you know, Lane's is a good restaurant, isn't it? It is. It's very the, good. Uh, we've I've the, had we've had supper there a couple times in the patio. We have, yeah. Uh surprisingly good salads at Lane's. It does they, have good salad, didn't it? Yeah, they, they did I feel like it, they were like they were some of the early adopters of that like mescaline mix, goat cheese, cranberry salad. That, that, am, yeah, I, this, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, with like a some kind of like strawberry dressing. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And um, and also the Rosamel Cultural Center is is really not to be missed. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So it's also difficult to find information about right now because if you go to their website, it's just a whole bunch of Russian writing. Um, uh oh. Do you think so, that do you think that they're owned by the same place that does the APA and V's? Yeah, it could be, could be. Although, so for those of you who want to visit the APA and B website, um, you can actually use, I discovered this last week, uh, you can use archive.org's Wayback Machine. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you'll find that it was, uh, we've, we've been logged by the Internet Archive a few times. Um, so if you, if you want critical information from about 2019 back uh, on the APA and B website, you can find it through the, uh, through the Wayback Machine. Yeah, I don't know. How, it doesn't help them pay their membership. No, no. But uh, that still has to be in a in a suitcase of uh, non sequential bills. Um, well, that's a great read, Ken. And so, um, again, where would they send in the the new name? Uh, to New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word. New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail dot com. Well, that's great. And do we have any uh, listener mail at that address? We do. We oh, do actually. Excellent. So we've got. Uh, I've discovered. So we we now have a Reddit account for those of you who are on Reddit, um, and so we're now getting spam emails from both Reddit <laughs> and Podcorn. Uh, but <laughs> alongside that, we actually have several emails. Um, so uh, the first one is from Scott Nielsen, a colleague of ours at the uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland. Um, and he was saying that he was hoping to see us at the CA and tell us how much he liked the podcast and get a sticker. Um, so uh, your sticker is in the mail, Scott. It's on. Well, it's not in the mail yet, but it, or is it? In well, the mail? it will be. It will. It be. will be. Yes. It will be in the mail. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I can probably send it from here because you're heading to America soon, eh? Yeah, I'm headed to the field. Yeah, if you could send that, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so he had a couple comments on um, a couple of different episodes. Actually, he was kind of going back through. Uh, that's no hiatus. So I believe that was the transitional archaic episode, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Or early woodland. I can't remember which one we called that. Let's look this up, listener. Yeah, we, so we we'll, tell you facts. As we've said before, we're a fact-based podcast, mostly. The uh, restaurant reviews and other cultural criticism are somewhat opinion-based, but uh, but the rest of this is fact-based. Oh, that's early archaic. That's the, uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. The great early hiatus. early woodland, right? Early archaic. Oh, early archaic. Oh, right. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. So the early archaic gap. episode. That's right. no hiatus. Uh, so re regarding triangular stem points of the Neville and Stark forms. Oh, there, there was my answer. We oh, have these cool. in Labrador as well, um, and they are found a little bit further north than indicated in the episode. That's actually fascinating. I didn't know. Oh, that. really? Um, he gives us a link to a Fitzhugh paper from 1972. Oh, wow. okay. uh, and several uh, several plates uh, that show those. That's fascinating. Uh, we also get ground stone crescent knives, aka ulus, in Labrador at places like Kamastasan uh, okay. and some other water routes in that region. They're also associated with Labrador archaic sites in the 7,000 to 6,000 year time frame, give or take a few centuries. Uh, and the Lonsamore burial is in Lonsamore in southern Labrador. Go figure. 
there have been some recent analysis and redating of the site by Von Grimes at Munn. I believe new dates put it in the 7,500 year range. He also did isotope analysis there. So there's some diet information as well. Okay, that's Neat. fantastic. And then cool. Anka's well, Big Mocha. There's also, there's one more. Anka's Big Mocha, when we talked about late archaic. Oh, you're cutting out there, Ken. Sorry, so you cut out for a minute. Oh, okay. Uh, so in the Anka's Big Mocha, the uh, late archaic episode, I mentioned timber flies. Uh -huh. um, these giant, like frightening bugs. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And you'd ask me if they would, you know, if they damage you. So they're also called horntails or wood wasps. They're scary looking, but they don't have a stinger and they're not dangerous. So the oh. end of them, which I pictured as being a stinger, the stinger is actually the ovisipositor of the female, which is used to inject eggs into trees through the bark. I've included a photo of one to fuel your nightmares. <laughs> yes, there they are. I'm going to share this with you, Gabe. So they, um, so they may impregnate you, but they won't bite you. Is that what Scott's telling us? Uh, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And uh, so, and then he offered us a title for the podcast. Um, just use an acronym of the current title, The Nap. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you, Scott. That was great. Uh, Thanks very thank much, Thank you Scott. for those erratas. Um, and we're sorry we didn't uh, didn't catch you at the CAS. Yeah, and uh, Wally wrote us back, um, and uh, he said that he's impressed that it took 13 episodes for Cree Hunters <laughs> of the Mastacity to make an appearance. Uh, for the record, I do think it's a great film. Um, Thank you, Lake Wally. Champlain is a bit southwest of New Brunswick, but a few threads from this episode reminded me of its allegedly silver waters. For one, taking Samuel Cham to Champlain's seriously and literally is how Vermonters made a pliosaur out of a lake sturgeon. And two, the Western Abenaki name for the lake ties in well with Wabanaki ethnicity being essentially, especially apparent in the proto-historic period. Bidawabagog means the lake between, and the lake is considered the Western border between the Wabanaki and Haudenosaunee confederacies. Oh, cool. Um, and he also proposes uh, too, far too much about far Northeast archaeology um, for, <laughs> uh, for the title. It's never too uh, much, Wally. <laughs> and uh our our friend michael who's the archaeology adjacent fan wrote um and actually had some information about the basque this might be a bit of an erratum um where i was talking about um that the basque weren't just coming from portugal uh it's uh they are a group that's indigenous to the border region between france and spain um uh among other compelling things there's a unique language unrelated to others spoken in the region uh, there's a large Basque diaspora, um, many of which are in North and South America. Um, seafaring and fishing is one aspect of the diaspora, but there are others, including sheep herding. There are oh, vast cool. populations that engaged in herding in Western U.S., for example, and perhaps in Western Canada. Really? Um, and then uh, he goes on to say that he was happy to hear about uh, that I'm reading uh, Graber and Wengrow and that uh, he, he is finding it to be a rather dense book. <laughs> uh, but that uh, uh, that there is a section in there about the Basque, so I haven't gotten to that one. But uh, yeah, there is. Uh, good to know. The, um, uh, cool. And then finally, uh, Wesley wrote back. Um, he had actually given us a Hakuna rod about the Boswell site. That's right. Yeah, Mexico. Wesley in Nova Scotia. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he said, "I just recent to recently listened to the Proto Historic episode. I enjoyed the consistency of jokes aimed at measurement system conflicts between the USA and Canada. <laughs> not sure if these were intentional, but if not, these fumbled units work perfectly." He quotes, "One meter is about thirty-six yards to you, Gabe," and then he <laughs> quotes me, "Thirty centimeters is about twelve feet." And if you do the calculation, we're actually <laughs> we actually <laughs> in, in, inadvertently. <laughs> 
got those right so <laughs> th- thank you for pointing that out wesley that yeah uh, that's thank, excellent thank, so thank you i we won't ask wesley what time of night you were listening to this to be inspired to, <laughs> to check our math on the on the metrics but but uh, thank you very much on the Lots materials and the metrics yeah, yeah, exactly. Dun, 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 dun. Um, well, that's a very exciting mail day, isn't it? It is a it, yeah, it was. But yeah, and I'll save uh, our I'll save our last piece of mail for our our hit piece. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that yeah. sounds good. Um, and so, listener, we wanted to let you know just um at the start here, um, Ken and I are both heading into a sort of interesting uh, time of year for us. Uh, I'm going in the field. Um, for a while, and uh, Ken is um, finishing his doctorate. <laughs> Preparing to defend. Yeah, exactly. And so we are still committed to providing um, basically fortnightly material, but they may not fall quite as precisely near the fortnight as they have been. So we're going to continue podcasting. It's just that due to me being in the field and Ken... Um, waking up in cold sweats thinking about his dissertation defense and uh and all of that sort of thing that that we may be a little off kilter uh probably through august we may be a little eccentric in our scheduling yeah that right, Ken? yeah yeah so we're sort of like the denouement of season one um <laughs> and uh which will be kind of a, a summer schedule and then uh i think we'll be back to regular programming in september kind of when we're both back in our seats as uh, uh, teaching the children and and uh, uh, that kind of thing. And so back on our, our bi-weekly uh, releases. That's right. Yeah. So so there will still be lots of summer content. So please tune in, you know, keep an eye on the Instagram um, or subscribe is really the best way to make sure that you get you get the content. Yeah. And uh, and some exciting stuff, too. Like uh, we'll get uh, we'll get a touch base with you guys in the field um mm-hmm. and uh and probably a couple interviews i think coming up is the idea and we've got we've got some interviews tentatively planned um and a bit of cultural criticism i believe that uh we're, we're going to be doing some uh some reviews for the listener yeah yeah which we'll also talk about in hit pieces right we will exactly yeah okay so stay tuned i think that's called the um the hook yes that is, i think that is called 25 minutes into the episode we've laid the hook for the uh yeah, man, you know, the speaking of the, this episode, a hook, finding a hook would be a great uh, historic artifact to find, wouldn't it? It would be. It would be. Yeah. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. Um, but so, so listener, uh, what you may have gathered from the the uh, intro uh, or the, the prequel to this show, whatever we call that, the lead-in <laughs> music, that um, we're uh, a little out of our comfort area this week because we're talking about historical archaeology. And so... Um, what historical archaeology is, is a matter of some debate. In one sense, it could be, um, for some archaeologists, it's the period at which, uh, you know, basically first mention in written records, right? So this would be in the Norse because of the sagas. Almost no one acts that way about it. Um, and so instead, I think what the definition of historical archaeology that we're going to use here is one that's basically from James Dietz, and that's a kind of anthropological definition that emphasizes people kind of coming into contact with the world system or the way in which North America particularly becomes part of what historians in Europe might call the modern period. Does that fit with your approach here, Ken? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and, uh, and you know, like you, you'd made a note here, but defined by method, I think it's also probably kind of pointing to material culture 
changes and that sort of thing as well. I think so. Yeah. So you get, um, you know, the the uh, the major major difference about method, right, is that by the time we're talking about historical archaeology, we're talking about people who are leaving written records too. Yeah. So um, the listener might ask, listener not familiar with historical archaeology, why do we need to do it historical archaeology if we have written records, right? <laughs> but yeah, why, why don't we just uh, why don't we just write about it? Um, and there's kind of two answers for that. One is, listener, have you ever met an historian? <laughs> they oh, <laughs> tread tread carefully here, Gabe. We they, could uh, we don't want to alienate the listeners. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say that the um, the one of the things about historians is that they have too much fun anyway. They travel wherever they want. They basically, as far as so, my my brother's a medievalist, and as far as I can tell, um, going into the field is basically like, well, the archive is open from 11 to noon. And that's fine because that way by 10.30, my hangover in some minor European city has mostly <laughs> abated and it's time for a nap. And then lunch at two. And then, well, maybe a bicycle ride around town. And then a few few more pints at the local pub, read a little bit of Jeeves and Worcester and then get back to the archives. That seems to be basically, that's method as I understand that that might be that might be it yeah yeah so so to get a little bit of a piece of this pie archaeologists thought well can we do this but with more dirt yeah <laughs> but there's a but there's an even more important reason and that is basically that just like there's bias in the archaeological record the uh there's bias in the written records right who leaves historical accounts what people write down that they want you to know about so i'm always reminded about this um the historical archaeology I've done has a lot of it was at Pequot war sites in Connecticut. So in the 1630s, um, there was a war between um, the English and their indigenous allies and with the Pequots. And one of the things when you read the records about this is that there are all these English uh, military leaders basically leaving wildly conflicting accounts of the same battles. <laughs> in which they each try to make the other military leader seem like the one who screwed up, right? Yeah, they're always the <laughs> the brave hero, you know, and it's not some some kid getting killed who's leaving these records. It's these important people, you know, right? Because that means that their records get saved, they get put down in the first place and all this stuff. So one of the things that archaeology can maybe do is provide a somewhat more um, egalitarian view of the past by trying to give some voice to folks who otherwise might not appear in historical records and you know there's all sorts of examples of this and we're going to talk about some of them uh today but i mean this includes whole groups right uh in this region it would include groups like black loyalists indigenous people in the historical period um we can the think french, sort of the like french acadians to a yep. certain to a certain degree we we'll actually have a case uh, kind of a perfect example of that uh where you get, uh, you know, the British side of uh, of the the raids and and uh, the archaeological record can help tell tell stories from the other side. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so so this is why we do this. This is why we're interested in material culture um, from this period. So, um, but this means, dear listener, that what we what we're doing here is we're going to sort of have to tackle this topic a little bit differently than the way that we've tackled other topics, which is 
to give you kind of an historical overview in a very rough kind of chronological way. And then we're really going to take a kind of greatest hits approach <laughs> to this. There's not going to be a lot of B-sides and rarities um, today. And we'll also, we'll also point you to some some critical reading that you can probably flip through and stuff that you might be able to find uh, pretty easily online to kind of uh, fill in, fill in the gaps and, and, uh, and, and, you know, cover off a lot of those dates that we're not going to get uh, buried down in. And these are yeah. not radiocarbon dates today. These are, these are all calendar dates. Yeah. You know, or pipe stem dates, right? You can more pipe stem dates, yeah. pipe stem dates, whatever you want to do. Um, and so uh, the other thing I guess we just say is that, uh, Sort of interestingly, I think compared to pre-contact archaeology, historical archaeology uh, in this region is has never been a big deal, really. Uh, in it, like it's received less attention, I think. Would that be fair, Ken? Uh, I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there there aren't a ton of active historical archaeologists working in the region. Um, I think a lot of the historic archaeology that's gone on in the Maritimes was under the there, there was sort of a well. So I guess con contemporary archaeology is not as much focused on historical archaeology, but some of the uh, largest excavations that have gone on in the province are as a result of excavations of things like forts um, mm -hmm. under the uh, the national park system. So parks, the the predecessor to Parks Canada, um, and uh, and their various entities are are were sort of integral to the historic archaeology of Canada. Um, and as a result, um, in the heydays, sort of in the 60s and 70s, um, there was a lot of historical archaeology done in the Maritimes, but mostly at what are these places that are now national historic sites, many of which were French and British forts. Um, and so that's probably sort of cementing Canada's national identity, right? This, you know, new flag, yeah. new, uh, new flag, new fort, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and two exactly. solitudes. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, uh, so... We've talked a little bit about historical archaeology, so that's text-dated archaeology about um, as about people becoming part of this modern world system. And there's some useful dates and date ranges here, and and we can sort of start with Champlain landing at Saint Croix, which goes really, really badly. Um, yep. Half of his crew gets scurvy. Basically, he gets iced in. It's the Little Ice Age. He gets iced in early. Um, half of his guys die. Um, other than that, it went pretty well. Um, sort of, <laughs> it's kind of architecturally impressive. Like it's a, you know, it's very, uh, very French, I guess the, the design and, um, and it's well worth visiting. You can visit I that you, well, you can't, it's hard to visit the Island, but you can, um, you can look at it from either the American or the Canadian side. Yeah. Um, and what we see, I think maybe in, when we when we think about Champlain's visit, and there's a really good book about this by Pendery, published by the Maine Ark Society, right? Which yep. uh, summarizes a bunch of things, including um, burials, uh, including stuff about some really good accounting of 17th century French material culture. And what we see, I think, one of the things is just that it's not as if the European arrival in North America goes really very smoothly for Europeans, right? There's all sorts of things they actually don't really understand. Climate, um, 
how to manage to eat nutritiously in a uh, in an ice <laughs> estuary, all of these kinds of problems. Um, they learned some of these lessons um, at St. Croix, but this is kind of the, you know, we're, we're getting sustained basically European contact approximately in um, New Brunswick by then. That then later becomes important. It becomes important to find St. Croix to establish the Treaty of Paris, you know, has to find Champlain settlement because the the maps are all are not very good and to yes, establish where is, the border is. And this and this was actually basically led to uh, to take us back to the first episode of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. Some of the the foundational archaeology in uh, probably the foundational archaeological excavation uh, in New Brunswick would have been uh, the at Saint Croix Island. Yeah, I think they literally found a foundation, which was important. Oh, there. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's very true. Yeah. yeah. The uh, and and so that then established, you know, good news. New Brunswick's in New Brunswick. It it was the Saint Croix River. That's the Saint Croix River that was referenced uh, by the Treaty of Paris. And so, Ken, um, you went through the New Brunswick school system. I did. Uh, would you like to? Would you like to you know, tackle sort of our broad culture historical outline here for the historical period? Uh, sure. So, um, so basically, Champlain landing in Saint Croix begins kind of the French um, uh, presence in the Maritimes. Um, uh, you'll hear that the French, for those of you who are not uh, native New Brunswickers, are the Acadians. Um, so, this is actually a word that derives from uh, probably from Verrazano um, when he arrived in Wash uh, in the Washington D.C. area and in, in the 16th century. Uh, remarked on the area and the vegetation. It's sort of springtime. It was reminiscent of Arcadia of ancient Greece. Basically, it's very lush. Um, and uh, the, what makes you the, wonder? So he he must never have been to Greece, right? So I, I think he probably read about it. Yeah. See, this is what we mean, listener. When we say that you need to be skeptical of historical accounts, right? He probably read about it from some, you know, equivalent of some, you know, 16th century historian who was. You know, spending about an hour a day, you know, actually doing doing the field work, and the rest of it was at the bar. <laughs> uh, it's possible. Um, and so uh, he, it was reminiscent of Arcadia, but the the R was later dropped. Um, it was then picked up <laughs> by Maritimers of the uh, the 20th century and leaned into pretty heavily. But uh, but the Acadians, as opposed to the Arcadians, um, uh-huh. are are French who occupied the region. Um, uh, basically, uh, from the early 17th century to the mid 18th century. Um, so there is the Acadian Civil War from 1635 to 1654, which is worth noting. Um, there's a series of sort of conflicts back and forth between the British and the French in these early days. Um, and uh, uh, presumably, I, I actually don't much know much about the Acadian Civil War itself. And that would seem to indicate that's between Acadians. That's what that would suggest, I guess. Um, but I also don't know what happened. Okay, we're yeah. gonna we're we'll, we'll come back. Why don't you take a look for that one, and I'll continue on with the stuff sure. I'm more familiar with. So, all right, um, uh, the Grand Derangement or Acadian Expulsion um, or the uh, the Great Displacement, uh, as it's sometimes called. Um, basically, that's in 1755. D75. It's also an excellent beer. Um, for those of you who are in, um, I can't remember where the brewery is. It's from Northern New Brunswick somewhere. Um, it's excellent IPA. Um, and that's between 1755 and 1764. Uh, and that's the period of time when the British have basically um, are asserting control and, and establishing themselves throughout 
all of the maritime provinces um, and uh, and are pushing Acadians off the land, often through very violent conflicts. Um, so can you and, chime in here? Sorry, just to go back to the Acadian Civil War real quick. Um, yep. The uh, so that that uh, embarrassing enough, that's um, Charles Latour is among those. So you know all, all the stuff oh. about the Latours. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Sorry, is okay. in there. Uh, uh, so various kinds of Acadian infighting. Um, yeah. Okay. But yeah, no, of course that's Latour. Sorry. The they there's a brewery, another brewery, a um, distillery now that has various Latour themed, um, uh, Latour themed liquors and i knew oh. that when i opened up my computer and i saw that the wikipedia article had already been clicked for the acadian civil war i thought to myself why have i clicked this and then i remembered why as soon as i opened it <laughs> fort latour being a fort that we did not discuss last week and that i see that i didn't put good notes on this week but uh, we've talked about it in later archaic and we've talked about it i think in the early woodland and the late woodland um and we'll we'll mention it again today so um, yeah. But uh, so continuing on, you have the, uh, the Seven Years War, which is actually a um, kind of a, a, a large conflict in um, parts of Europe, India and the United States or throughout the Americas. Um, it's a, a series of battles that are going on between 1756 and 1763. So it actually is Seven Years War. So you remember there's another there's like a nine years war that actually goes for like 12 years or something like that. Um, I can't remember. I, I, I might, lost interest. It's, it's been a long time since I've done these done these history history lessons but uh basically these were ongoing battles between um uh, uh the british and the french um basically the uh, the british sort of again continuing to sort of wrestle control of parts of um new france and then into quebec um you know after uh, the you know acadia had started to fall um uh, the british are moving in the same things are happening in the united states where the british are basically um, pushing in to uh, uh, to establish themselves there. Um, the North American, uh, the French and Indian War is actually what it's called for the North American theater. Um, and uh, from between about 1688 to 1763, there's a series of French and Indian Wars, um, uh, which are basically the uh, various different indigenous groups siding with the French or siding with, uh, with uh, the British, depending upon when and where. Um, uh, I think it was the uh, in New England, you know this a little bit better than I do, but uh, uh, certainly in uh, the Maritimes, the the indigenous groups tended to side with the French um, mm -hmm. uh, prior to British assuming control. Um, yeah, and we should probably flag Father Rail's war in here, uh, okay. which just because that mostly because there's been some archaeology about it. So Ellie Cowie and Jim Peterson in. Um, what was called Norwich Walk, but is actually now Madison, which is Madison, Maine, which is near Norwich Walk. Um, there's a there's actually a, um, a monument there about it. I I think it was placed by the Daughters of the American Revolution, actually, sort of bizarrely. Um, huh. But uh, this is kind of an interesting case. Uh, Father Rails, Sebastian Rails, a priest um, who started the first school in Maine, and he's he's at this you know kind of fortified community. Um, and he alternatively has been portrayed uh, when the British attack as either a martyr or as someone who, you know, kind of went down with a knife in his teeth, shooting British at at uh, alarming rapidity um, or English rather. And uh, and so um, he uh, but he, one of Rail's contributions, though, was that this is again my understanding is that basically his nephew had written to him, you know, something like Uncle Sebastian, you know, tell me about the indigenous people. And he'd 
written an extremely long letter to his, I think it was his nephew, that included a lot of information about uh, Abenaki linguistics, and oh. but very very thoughtfully had had kept a copy of it in his own lockbox at Narjwak, so that when uh, when the British finally got him, uh, the um, lockbox with this material uh, was was retained, um, and so it's kind of an important ethnohistoric document. And there's a lot of interesting kind of cultural stuff about how Rael is regarded, right? Uh, it, in in some ways, he seems to be, he kind of became kind of a Wabanaki hero, right? Because either way, if he was a martyr or if he was uh, an enthusiastic fighter on the behalf of the um, indigenous and French, that's, that's still kind of interesting. Hey, well, that's good. Some detail as you get in history. <laughs> the, uh, I hope it was right. That's that's the that's that's the crucial mistake. I I, I just brace ourselves for the for the errata. But um, yeah, Eli Cowie's um, dissertation at at Pitt is about the archaeology there. Oh, I didn't know she did historical stuff for dis dissertation. Well, kind of, it's kind of a contact period thing. There's 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 pre-contact sites there too. It's the Tracy Farm site. It's generally called. Okay. Um, but it includes uh, historic contact period stuff. Right on. So, um, so the Seven Years' War has a number of fairly famous battles as it relates to sort of Canada being uh, born as a country and and sort of this kind of tension between French and British. Um, certainly, probably the most famous of these is the Battle of the Plains of Abraham between British and French forces, um, which were you know the uh, Wolf and Mont Montcalm and and the French were allied with uh, a number of indigenous indigenous groups. Um, at that time, uh, including the band uh, mentions this this battle. Pardon right? me. The the band yes. mentions this yeah, battle. Yeah, what went so, down in the plains so, of Abraham. Yeah. So um, for those of you who are looking for uh, another um, acoustic uh, okay. uh, accompaniment to, to this tonight's episode, I would highly recommend the band's song "Acadian Driftwood." Um, it's fantastic. It's been humming through my head actually the entire day. Um, if we had the uh ability to not be sued by playing a uh uh by playing it we would probably have it on loop sort of in the background throughout yeah. this entire episode but since we've already um, been contacted by sam cook's uh state attorney <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so uh uh yeah so uh, indigenous groups even from the maritimes were were among the um uh forces who were, were basically involved in in uh, a number of these battles and of course, this um, the Seven Years' War culminates uh, in 1763 with the signing of the Treaty of Paris and the formation of British North America, basically. Um, uh, so uh, you have, uh, I don't know, a, a little bit of peace for a few years before um, some upstarts in uh, uh, in uh, Yankee Doodles in uh, in New England. We call them um, Patriots, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of come together to uh 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 raise hackles and and uh fight the american war revolutionary well, we war slightly different attitudes about benedict arnold as well i suppose i i mean i really don't hold any great <laughs> love for the 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 18th century british uh colonialists that's uh uh, but uh, you know, that's, these are these are like as as the theme of the day is that these are other people's wars essentially. That yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, so as a result of the signing of Treaty of Paris, though, one of the things that was activated was that um, 
uh, Governor Lawrence, so the British governor in uh, Nova Scotia at the time. So uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were actually one colony called Nova Scotia at this time. They hadn't been split up. I can't specifically remember when New Brunswick, when they split off, but it was shortly after this. Um, and uh, essentially the planter population. So um, I grew up in Keswick Ridge uh, outside of Fredericton. Um, and that was an area that was actually settled by planters. And so these were New England um, agriculturalists, usually for the most part, who arrived essentially in the mid 18th century, um, following an invitation from Governor Lawrence to essentially populate the land um, that the French used to occupy. And so the area where I grew up, Keswick Ridge, is actually very close to a historic French settlement. Um, it's called French Village now, um, but it was an Acadian settlement, very close to the present day Billick or uh, Kingsclear First Nation as well. Um, uh, so kind of give you a sense of the, the, the French and the indigenous connections that were going on um, prior to uh, British um, and, uh, and uh, uh, New England occupation. And so uh, during the American Revolutionary War or the American War for Independence, however you want to frame it, uh, between 1775 and 1783, um, uh, following the war, um, uh, I guess uh, America won and uh, would be... <laughs> would be the uh, outcome. And um, uh, American colonists who were loyal to the crown, uh, British crown during the American Revolution, uh, were brought up to what remained a British colony, British North America in Canada, um, and uh, uh, were settled on the land. And so some of the original land grants in um, the original petitions and original land grants in New Brunswick date to sort of this period between sort of the late 1760s to the late to the 1780s. Um, and so when you're doing um, the archival research, like you talk about that Gabe talked about earlier, um, and you're going to the New Brunswick archives, either on the UNB campus or visiting it, there's a great, um, uh, there's actually quite a few resources through their website, which maybe we'll link in the show notes. That's a great idea. Um, you can look up uh, a number of the family names and the people who would have been issued these original land grants. And in some cases, what are called cadastral maps that you can find um, on the archives website will include, um, uh, they're, they're kind of a, it, it depends how many hands it's changed, but sometimes mm -hmm. on those cadastral maps, you can actually have the original land grant. So the, the plot of land that would have been granted back in the 18th century. Um, and so you have a, a, a variety of people, particularly along the Wolostock River, um, uh, you know, between sort of, Fredericton and down to the city of St. John, um, you have these very long kind of classic uh, colonial lots being set basically from the river back. Um, you know, they're all about, uh, um, I think there are a hundred acres each, I think was the standard issuance. Yeah. And, and is and the shape to afford access to the St. John? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the St. John is basically a main trade artery um, and shipping artery uh, for moving goods from, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the, um, the Maritimes as it had been for some time, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so included though, uh, an important part of maritime history is that included in these loyalists were black loyalists. And so these were um, some, many of whom were uh, uh, freed, uh, uh, slate, uh, were freed black people, but also um, some of whom were actually still enslaved black uh, uh, loyalists who made their way to um, somewhere around 3,000 of them to about Nova Scotia, um, and then kind of fanned out and settled in various different communities throughout the Maritimes, um, a number of which you can pick up from uh, toponyms throughout the uh, region, some of which are 
maintain some some sort of problematic um, epithets uh, referring to black settlement, but uh, probably one of the most famous is the uh, Africville in uh, downtown Halifax, um, sort of very large black settlement, uh, black loyalist settlement that was raised, I think sometime in the 1950s to basically build an off-ramp for the highway that I, uh, if I, I think remember so. correctly. And, and the, the person to consult about this would be, there's a lot of work by um, Harvey Monty Whitefield, who okay. was at UVM, I think is now somewhere in Alberta, I think uh, uh, maybe at Calgary. I'm not 100% sure, but anyway, but his um, he's worked extensively on basically these, these um, Black loyalist communities and on questions of enslaved loyalists that came to Canada. Um, and so highly recommend his work. He gave a lecture here at UNB, uh, one of the, the premier lectures for the arts council. I can't remember which one it was, but the Faculty of Arts. Um, his work's really interesting. And the other person I would just flag here is, I'm actually on a, a master's committee. It's very exciting. Uh, Emily Drakeo is working on um questions of basically locations of enslavement here in uh basically Fredericton you know Fredericton oh, surrounding wow. areas um so that will be available soon we won't be able to link it in the show notes but that thesis will be out and I'm sure published uh fairly soon very very interesting and so and my my kind of connection to this actually is that um where I grew up um just in behind my parents house um in Keswick Ridge there is a Black Loyalist Cemetery um, uh, many of whom uh, the buried, uh, the dead that are buried there, are um, the ancestors of the first black NHL hockey player, uh, Willie O'Ree. Um, so, oh, interesting. Um, his family is there, and so I'm guessing at some point there was a black loyalist settlement in this in the area where I grew up, um, but I actually don't know much about the history of that. So, um, yeah, no, I I think that's actually a bit of Emily's uh, work on this is just sort of recognizing that many of these kind of locations are not well recognized you know by the kind of contemporary inhabitants of this region so it's important to acknowledge those kinds of places you know so you know I know there are examples just about even in talking to her about who who was an enslaver you know some of the kind of famously now I guess some of the big names uh, in the province of people that the kinds of people that would have university buildings named after them were enslavers <laughs> you know but the uh yeah. But uh, but but sort of a, a bit of a reckoning about about this kind of history. It's excellent. Um, so that is kind of the timeline up until the 18th century um, and uh, late 18th century. And, and after that, uh, throughout the 19th century, you have a series of sort of in migrations into New Brunswick, um, various different European groups, um, a lot of, you know, British Isles. Uh, uh, but as well, you have um, uh, German groups and Dutch and uh, and other Eastern European groups arriving. Um, you'll notice that like in there's like hamlets in some parts of the province that, uh, you know, in like the Sussex area, there's a lot of uh, German and, and Dutch uh, history in that area. Um, so uh, agrarian sort of farming settlements and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and then you're kind of into the sort of Euro-Canadian period and, um, and that kind of I think is sort of a very glossed over um, uh, pre-Confederation uh, uh, histor historical timeline of, of history. I, I, I think that's great, Ken. I think I think we definitely passed the seventh grade, um, and and I think <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I, I think they're going to let us into high school. Um, the the shame think- of it is that I, I took all these Canadian history courses in, in high school and university. And uh, man, I like I retained so little of that for some reason. Yeah, I wonder what reason that could be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I have an excuse. I took no Canadian history courses uh, ever, I don't think. Um, so Ken, I think we're going to pivot to material culture, but since I am not broadcasting from my usual UNB studio, where um, where uh, I don't have air conditioning and the and the fan would have made this deafening, I'm sitting in a dining room chair and I desperately need to get a pillow to support my back because I'm <laughs> peering at my computer, which is propped up on a cookbook. <laughs> so I'm going to propose, Ken, that we pause here briefly, refresh our beverages, and I get a pillow to continue into the material culture part of this. How does that sound? Yeah, I think I could use another English ale. Yeah, I think I could use a whiskey and that pillow because my back is killing me. (laughs) Different color. What are you drinking now? Uh, It's a little bit lighter, so it's also an English ale. Um, It's called uh, The Dandy, Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful. This is actually a Calgary beer. So Henderson's is is my favorite Toronto beer. This is uh, probably my favorite Calgary beer. Okay. And the listener can't tell, but to lean into the full summer experience, Ken's drinking his favorite beer, and he's wearing a shirt that I'm pretty sure you can see from outer space. That uh, <laughs> this, I, I don't think. What's that? T- tell us about this shirt, Ken. I, I, is it, I don't think it's an Aloha shirt, technically. I don't know. I th- so this is a shirt that I can't tell which part is purple, which part's blue, or if it's all blue. Uh, yeah, I, the. And, and they're flowers, I think. Are they flowers or birds? Mm. You know, I hadn't really puzzled to look at it. I quite like it. It's very oh, it bright. It I was is. very upset, actually, that uh, the poor workmanship. There's a small tear, actually, in the shirt. Oh, that's that, a shame. Uh, I think it's bright enough, though, that it it uh, it's uh, covered up by the by the loud colors. Yeah, I mean, and my, and, and my chest hair. That's, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, there's enough distraction on the sleeves and on my chest that. Uh... Yeah, well, it's bright enough that the floaters in my eyes have obscured the uh, obscured the tears. <laughs> uh, is it some sort of moisture wicking fabric, too? It's not, but it's very breathable. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, while it's not muggy here, um, you know, with age, I my tolerance for heat uh, decreases the older I get. Um, and, uh, I perspire and expire much faster. Uh, and, uh, so I, I need a, I need a breathable shirt and no undershirt and, uh, and an open yeah. collar. So, you know, Ken, it's, it's not that we're expiring faster. It's just that we're closer to our expiration dates. Than we used to be. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, so listener, I have a, a pillow to make my dining room chair more comfortable. Speaking of, as, as Ken and I discuss ourselves aging. And uh, the uh, yeah, Ken's uh, Ken's son last time we spoke was kind enough to point out that uh, his father and I were both balding, but in different directions. <laughs> um, he still talks fondly of the uh, the streetcar lunch, streetcar travel, and and lunch that we had uh, in that Toronto. Was good. That, uh, yeah, his friend Gabe is is uh, that's how he refers to you. Yeah, that was that was that was a fun a uh, fun uh, lunch, and I I think he he's probably the youngest person to ever have dined there uh possibly it's it's a pretty hip spot like yeah the name escapes me right now very good cocktails and, and tapas i think is the yeah name. i wish i could remember the name of that place um it's on college street i'll look uh, it up here while we're while we're bantering 
Yeah, because I, I think we we do probably owe them a shout out. They even if they're not ideal for the for the three year old customer, they are ideal uh, if you're near nearest the University of Toronto. Um, because I remember uh, Amy Fox and you both recommended that place to me, and it was it was great. Tapas, good cocktails. Barbaral. Barbaral, that's the place. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's actually l- listed as a tapas bar. Oh, is it? Yeah. It also yeah, has three dollar signs befo- beside it. I don't remember it being that expensive. Uh, I don't either. Maybe we were accidentally ordering off the children's menu. Perhaps. There's also a really nice LCBO right next door. I remember we went in there together. Yeah. I think your your kid wanted a chartreuse or something. I can't remember the details. <laughs> I got a very nice um, Amaro that day. Yeah, yeah. The but 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 if if we start talking about Amaro, we're going to be back onto our uh, we done at two in the morning. It's already quarter past here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Quarter past. Um, so we're talking about material culture, um, and so this is we're going to kind of go all encompassing here. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll this is semi chronologically maybe I guess uh, we're going to start with the French some some highlights some of the French technologies. Yeah. I feel like when um, we say this is going to be chronologically, it's actually going to be like uh, like that scene in High Fidelity when they ask the John Cusack character how he's organizing his records, and he says autobiographically. We're gonna, <laughs> we're going to tell you about material culture autobiographically, listener. Um, um, but Ken, so Ken uh, uh yes. Which are which are pretty cool, and I've never worked on one, but you have. Yeah, yeah. The so, Acadian Dyke system. Will you describe this for the listeners? Yeah. So um, when the Acadians arrived arrived in the Maritimes, um, they settled in areas that were very in close proximity to a number of these <clears throat> very large salt marshes and tidal rivers, um, of which were familiar to areas in I believe it's the southwest of France. Um, uh, part of France, basically, that uh, was was similar to the homeland and using technology that had kind of been developed in the homeland in France, um, they the Acadians adapted um, a, a pretty sort of engineering marvel technology uh, to manage these salt marshes um, and salt flats. And so essentially um, using a system of sort of dikes and, and, uh, um, and uh, levees, uh, so these are basically trenches that are dug. So the, the levee is the dugout part and the dike is basically the mound um, that uh, that is placed beside that. And uh, and then this, what is called an aboiteau, which is a sluice system. And so this is like a trough basically um, that is placed at the bottom of a dike um, so that at high tide, essentially the water would come in the tidal river. Um, it would fill up the river uh, and in the uh, in the sluice at the bottom of the Aboiteau, there was a small what's called a clapper. Um, so this was basically a little door that would shut closed um, and would not allow the salt water to go into the marsh. Um, and so that uh, it would prevent uh, salt water from getting into uh, the marsh area that was behind the dike. Then as the tide receded, the water that was in the uh, on the salt marsh or above behind the dike would actually drain out through the sluice way. So the clapper was one way, so it kind of stopped water from getting in, but allowed water to go out. And in doing so, they built these, you know, hundreds of these along the waterways, um, along the Petticodiac, Shepody, um, uh, the Musquash River, uh, or sorry, not Musquash. What's the one between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia? 
Maybe that is my squash. I don't know. The uh, the one I remember you guys all talking about were the ones you worked on in the Petacodiac project. Yeah, yeah. And so um, so I had the opportunity, actually. So a few years ago, for those of you who are New Brunswickers, you might remember um, that the Petacodiac River. Can I, actually was... I have to tell you, it wasn't a few years ago. I think it was a decade ago. Oh, it was over a decade ago. It was the yeah, first yeah. year I worked in archaeology, actually, uh, that uh, the, this project that we found the Aboiteau. And then we found other ones during the Petacodiac project. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I remember Jesse, I think, because Jesse took that gap year. So he joined us a, a year later than we did in our MA program. But I remember he was on that project for you know, a year, a long time, but, a, but, you know, a long time. I mean, they, they apparently knew him by name at the, whatever the, the Auberge in Moncton or wherever he stayed. Missaguash river, not uh, that's the river between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And in any case, um, so uh, the Petacodiac is a great example of this. This is the river that runs through Moncton, New Brunswick. For those of you who are not uh, familiar with New Brunswick geography, sort of in the Southeast of the province, um, Acadian homeland, really, um, uh, Moncton used to be called the Bend, um, and for reasons that uh, I'm sure many uh, Francophone uh, uh, New Brunswickers would love the city to be renamed uh, back to the Bend because of the, um, as we'll learn about, the uh, the Moncton comes from a rather ruthless um, uh, uh, French or uh, a British uh, uh, general. Um, so I have, a, so I have a question, Ken, about that topic. Um, it's just about spelling, which I guess is stupid, but. Moncton the city spelled this name differently than Moncton the general, right? It's still named after him, though. It is, okay. Yeah, they dropped the K, and I'm not sure why. I, I was just going to ask if you knew why. That might be to make it more palatable. palatable. Who knows? I, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure why. Yeah, that would be a classic New Brunswick concession to the Acadians. That we'll, we'll give you one letter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mar Mark in French is with a C. So <laughs> yeah. why does... Um... <laughs> who knows can okay. you imagine that's the reason i mean i wouldn't shock me <laughs> the, i was um, reading this fascinating thing that i said this is this is only loose related but the um the centennial building which is you know being basically wrecked as far as i can tell um which is this modern building uh quite near where i live down at fredericton um uh built in the 60s basically to divert federal funds to make a gigantic uh administrative building it's kind of a cool modern uh Mesian box so it's sort of neat modern building um but once they diverted these federal funds the people who were about to lay the uh corner piece Robichaud who was the premier uh his assistant noticed at like the 11th hour that they'd forgotten to make the cornerstone bilingual and without even consulting Robichaud, realized that the crisis was going to be so acute, he had to call the Mason and and have it remedied. And so, oh, you know, skip 16 levels of government to have that taken care of. It's, I think, recorded in his memoir or his journals or somewhere. But anyway, yeah, just while we're talking about New Brunswick well, so, so uh, a backwardness. Quick, a quick Google search uh, lands me on a blog maintained by Tail End Charlie Ted Church. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems to indicate that uh, it was a clerical error that uh, the K was dropped when Moncton was incorporated as a city in, in 1855. Yeah, so we're giving them the benefit of the doubt by thinking they were, they were just incompetently nasty. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, when, uh, if, if Wikipedia has anything on that, but I don't know if that's reputable. Um, in any case, uh, so the Pentecodiac River was essentially transformed from being a 
um, uh, a saltwater river into essentially the, the most uh, sort of fantastic arable land. And so these salt flats, essentially, along the Petticodiac River and other rivers, uh, the Acadians were able to work them. And so these were um, areas that would have been inundated with saltwater kind of in and out for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, which makes them very rich in organics, which makes them absolutely fantastic for growing crops. Um, and so these, this was very arable land, high, high organic content. So very, it was basically produced its own um, uh, fertilizer uh, just by being the way it is. Uh, in the 1960s, I believe it was, the river was dammed uh, alongside many other rivers in, in uh, New Brunswick, um, I think ostensibly for hydroelectric purposes. Uh, but the power generation on the dam was decommissioned sometime, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, and then uh, a fairly substantial project, archaeological project over, I think, about 30 kilometers of the Petticodiac River was uh, 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 came up with Darcy Dignam, basically kind of developed the whole uh, methodology for it, but really fascinating. But a precursor to that and actually may have fed into some of Darcy's uh, strategy when it came to um, uh, mitigating uh, some of the archaeological work when it came to the Petakodia project was the first year that I worked in archaeology. Um, we were uh, doing some testing on uh, a salt marsh in Boundary Creek, which is just sort of west of Moncton, um, for a, I believe it was a lagoon, a municipal lagoon uh, upgrade. Um, That's and, one thing uh, about Darcy is he's, he's uh, known for being able to get a sewage lagoon job with it so so this was one of them <laughs> yeah um, i did a sewage and, lagoon uh, for darcy once too uh but we did not quite an ablet though <laughs> a mutual colleague of ours lisa um lisa and i were kind of uh a, i feel like we were the last ones standing that field season there, may, <laughs> there was a group of other people there but we found a bunch of wood in a series of test pits um and opened up uh got an excavator to come out because they, they were you know we're digging these by hand um this stuff is all very compact silt down to well over a meter deep, um, was very difficult to dig, um, even more difficult to screen. Um, and uh, what we, we found this wood and we found what appeared to be something intact that was wood um, that kind of got our hackles up. And so we uh, had an excavator come in and dig sort of a T-shaped trench, which uh, uh, if I remember correctly, it was either Darcy or Lisa, but whoever out of the two of them decided where to put the trench essentially landed right on top of this thing. And right. it was a very early Acadian Aboiteau sluice. Um, and this was hand hewn. So this would have been a tree basically that had been hollowed out and chopped apart with axes, um, sort of square shaped in its basin. The clappers were gone, but you could see where they, where one of them fit in. There was only a space for one of them. Um, most of the old, like the more recent ones that were probably in the, in the 18th century had two clappers on them, but really fascinating. Uh, Darcy took a sample of the wood and got it dated and it came back, uh, um, you know, sort of very early French. Um, he did uh, is, dendrochronology dating on that, right? Yeah. Dendrochronology dating so that's on it, which tree is tree ring dating for the listener. Yeah. Which is, tree ring. So, I remember back to, and if you're wondering what that is, you think you can go back to the first episode. I think we talk about dating. I think we talk about dating. Yeah. Yeah. That, which, um, it's been a long time, listener, since since anyone wanted to hear what Ken and I had to think about dating. Yeah, um, but the, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but and it's but and it's just... kind of an interesting case study in like what do you do when you find um, artifacts that are unstable? And so when we yeah. say unstable artifacts, um, we're talking about uh, material material culture that would degrade, basically taking it out of the ground without kind of any preventative measure. And so when you when wood is found in a con in a wet context. 
um, it is generally in good condition because it's if it's in mud, for example, it's in what are anoxic conditions. So it's not the wood is essentially preserved. It's kind of think of it like a bog body would be kind of the similar idea, right? Like um, until you take them out of that, uh, uh, it doesn't degrade. And so um, we had uncovered this. Uh, we had, you know, after we uncovered it and excavated it out, um, this is this is the first time I met a colleague of ours, Vinny, who uh, instead oh, really? told me, uh, yeah. So um, this is my first year working in archaeology, and so I had one of those like you know shovel bum trowels that was like unsharpened, you know, just like yeah. wasn't uh, wasn't up to snuff, wasn't an archaeologist trowel. It was it was you know uh, a loner kind of thing, right? And uh, and he and he takes the trowel in his hand, and he looks at me, and he goes. If you're going to be an archaeologist, you're going to need a better trowel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, I got uh, Vinny Bourgeois, the great New Brunswick archaeologist. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, parks, I got a Marshalltown right? shortly after that, actually. Oh, oh, so it wasn't even a Marshalltown. It was. Uh... No. Well, it might have been, but it was one of the ones that was like, you know, like the big, the big guys. Yeah. yeah. And listener, you you could actually get a Marshalltown with the Eco4 logo if you are thinking about those bingo yeah. cards. Think about those bingo cards, and uh, and we've you've probably dabbed a couple of them. So, um, so in this case, uh, basically we so we did a bunch of archival research, the kind that Gabe was talking about earlier, um, at the Musée d'Acadie in uh, at the University of Moncton or Université de Moncton, um, and unfortunately there were no facilities that were able to take the sluice um, and uh, preserve it. So uh, a large object like this would need to be submerged in a, in an epoxy. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, polyethylene glycol. Polyethylene glycol, um, which you have experience with the the canoe that you guys found in Maine, right? Yeah, it was, so Tim Spar cool found. Process. I mean, the, if the example might actually be kind of illustrative. So, so Tim Spar, uh, who runs the CPAA, Cape Forward Psychological Alliance, and me and other people, Arthur, uh, Arthur Anderson, Art Spies, Jim Hudgel, um, found this. So Tim found it, and then we we all kind of excavated this thing from the intertidal in uh, basically Kennebunkport, Maine, which you know within sight of the George Bush compound. Uh, I found <laughs> found out later that on on camera uh, I had apparently it, it was a little it's a little stressful to excavate one of these things, right? Because they're they're pretty volatile, and so I'm standing in the water up to my hips, and I'd been out there for a while, and uh, someone came around with spicy Cheetos. And I, and I ate some, and I apparently said slightly too loudly that I'd always wanted to be eating some rich person's spicy Cheetos while excavating Maine's oldest canoe. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, what can you do? And um, anyway, but uh, but Tim came up with this, like Tim's a museum studies background kind of guy, um, so knows a lot about stabilizing artifacts that are not going to be in good shape for long. And so um, you take this dugout canoe, and you basically put it into this wooden box um, supported by actually pool noodles to give it, uh, to make sure it maintains its structure. Stability, yep. Yeah, and then you um, you slowly basically give it kind of a freshwater wash, but then you're slowly putting in more and more polyethylene glycol. And what that does is it basically leaches into the cells of the, of the wood and sort of fills in the cells. So rather than degrading, the thing is, is given structure and stays and stays together and it's the same thing they do for um shipwrecks which is relevant you know big like big shipwrecks like um the vasa um which is known as sweden sweden's first submarine i believe um <laughs> but uh yeah and and so so this is a technique that you can do if um if there is a facility and an institution that's able to preserve this <clears throat> unfortunately even with the early date there was no 
um, funding or availability to preserve this. And so the the methodology that came up with was that <clears throat> the safest thing to do with this uh, uh, with this was to basically rebury it in similar conditions. And so mm -hmm. we had exposed this thing. We wrapped it up in basically textile wrap, packed mm -hmm. in very tightly a bunch of mud around it, basically, so that it was the the shape was kept. And then um, the the really really uh, talented operator who had helped uncover the whole thing and didn't nick it once basically so the like backhoe guy, operator the backhoe operator yeah. who like was was a talent in and of like you know <laughs> yeah yeah uh, it just just incredible um yeah some of those guys they, are miracle workers yeah so so basically they came up with this sling system where we very it was a very complicated we had to get it sort of we had pedestaled the whole thing and then we had to bring it into the sling oh, cool. and then we had dug a separate trench elsewhere on the same marsh flat outside of the project area um, that would not be disturbed that basically was just going to be there um, and reburied it at a, like almost the same depth so it should be basically in identical conditions cool um gps it and presumably at some point in the future the hope is that there'd be somebody that in a, or an institution that's willing to take it on so if anybody that's listening fantastic. to the program is yeah. a wealthy benefactor and is interested in acadian history um uh you know uh, uh get in touch with uh with the province or darcy dignam uh and uh and find out because I, I i've always wanted to kind of revisit that it was uh it was the first major excavation i did as an archaeologist uh, yeah. that was not like a mayan temple um and that <laughs> uh it was it was a really really fascinating learning experience and so um i've always kind of been fascinated by abotos as well uh, just yeah. like the the technology and Super um cool. yeah very very cool so uh, I so remember one of the uh, sorry, just or, or the other thing a wealthy wealthy benefactor could do is ask the province, "Hey guys, what's the budget line this year? <laughs> what did that yeah, go to?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you guys should be should be doing this, or or we get a a research position, a, uh, an endowed chair of research at the New Brunswick Museum, or something like that. There we so, go. That'd be great. The yeah. um, but one of the things I remember Darcy talking about in the Pedicodiac was that these systems. They there is my recollection that there were there's kind of a modern version of these too, right? That they had to be sort of replaced with metal ones. Yeah, yeah. So that, so so the so the mitigation for the the so there was archaeological work that went on with the Pedicodiac, but because it had been dammed, essentially a lake had formed a new, and so there's different levels of sedimentation that had built up on what was formerly shoreline. And so once the tidal flow was restored to the river, what it was going to do is start to eat away at some of this. What had been shoreline basically right and it was going to naturally sort of just slough off and disappear into the into the river with each tide uh tidal flow um and so to mitigate this they essentially borrowed an old idea and uh um built these large concrete and metal abwateaux and new diking systems and new levees and uh and so what we were doing as archaeologists was essentially standing on the banks of the petakodiak river with about a, a meter or so of <laughs> soil between us and the river. And usually it was frozen because like it was the middle of winter when we were doing Oh, I remember stuff. hearing about this. Yeah. And uh um and we we were monitoring an excavator dig, you know, a two to three meter deep trench or levee. Yeah, explain and then, what monitoring is for the listener. And so so this is essentially when an archaeologist um watches heavy equipment do archaeological work or do excavation in around an area that is of archaeological concern. Um, and this is usually sort of a mitigation of last resort. Um, and so if you are in a situation where you have done a number of, uh, you've done some testing, 
and you're not confident that like yeah, you you've maybe have found something and you've excavated it, but you want to make sure that you don't miss anything else, or you're in an area where you did some testing and you thought you might find something you might and you didn't, or you're in an area that doesn't actually um, lend itself easily to um, conventional techniques. You will essentially watch very closely uh, a heavy equipment operator push, dig, or um, uh, move around soil from an uh, from an area, basically. The, the listener can't tell, but Ken just took a gigantic drag on a, a, a perhaps the largest Cohiba I've ever seen. And yeah. really Apol- apologies, listener, for the, <laughs> uh, the 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 fading uh, the, the the grunts here. Ken so gets very emotional to... about Abuatos, and uh, yeah, and yeah, exactly. sometimes it's, uh, I, I, yeah. it's it's more the uh, the uh, the the haunting uh, uh, remembrance of of cold days on the Petakodiak, <laughs> and I didn't have that many of them. Like I, there's colleagues yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. who might be might be listening right now and are are shaking in their boots. Yeah, because I think Jesse just eaten a whole Cohiba, perhaps listening <laughs> to this. But they, uh, the no, I feel, I feel this is also the thing where Ken and I are doing historical archaeology here, and it reminds me of that old New Yorker cartoon where um, there's there's a guy sitting at the piano, um, and uh, and he and he says this, this song is very difficult for me emotionally, plus the chords are hard. This is <laughs> this is like this is what Ken and I are doing here. Um. So so that's so how we get about toast. That's that's a half an hour on Abateau. Now we're going to do about <laughs> ten minutes on everything else. So, it's a... <laughs> so uh, we've got um, portage routes, which is a uh, sorry, I said portage, which is a very main way to say it. Portage it routes, portage, um, yeah. become so you know the, in the United States we have to say portage, like portage lake. Yep. Um, you also say callus. We do. As opposed to Calais. Express goes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's we don't want to be pretentious, Ken. Yeah. Um, and so as you, as you know, I think we, we were interested in this in the pre-contact period, but um, one of the things that becomes interesting, I think, throughout the Northeast is that various kinds of indigenous routes become other kinds of transportation routes, yep. right? So they become uh, wagon trails, they could become highways, they could then become rural highways. And so many of the the routes that folks drive on now are past indigenous transportation routes. Yeah, because... yeah, and the, and the and these and these overland travel routes, the indigenous groups were using also were like integral to the early European uh, presence there. So, for example, there's like a an indigenous portage route between like the Washtenaw Lake uh, or, or Canaan River and the Petticodiac River that became kind of a central corridor for the French to travel between uh, Fort Beauséjour and, and Quebec City, for example. It was like part of that travel route between um, essentially the southeast of New Brunswick all the way up to um, sort of the French uh, occupation in, in in Quebec, too. So, you know, these uh, these became parts of, of present-day uh, travel routes. And, and then, as you said, in some cases, became highways o- over sure. time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I think what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of run through, um, you know, I mean, this, this is the old uh, pre-contact archaeologist joke is what's, what's the, what's an historical archaeologist? And the answer is someone who does research on eBay. Um, you know, the, you know, the, there's a certain element of, so I, I, uh, my PhD supervisor is Kevin McBride and, uh, he's an historical archaeologist now, he's a prehistoric archaeologist before that, um, but uh, he was always singing the praises of that where you actually get the good reference material is at church basement book sales. 
you know, where you could pick up, you know, <laughs> these antiques guides that were actually way yeah. more useful than than most of the stuff archaeologists are putting out that, you know, like the, you know, but Kevin also like holds up a pipe stem and says, oh, the site is 1680, but we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm realizing I forgot to put numismatics on here, but uh, for those of you who are interested <laughs> in it, uh, uh, we're, we're entering into the period where you can use coins to uh, to date sites and, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, in, in many fill deposits, you'll find a, a series of pennies dating back to... Uh, um, which can actually, I mean, that tells you that it's like pre 2015, I think too. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and wanting more coin actually is one of the themes of our, of our sponsorship <laughs> program. <laughs> All right. So, um, so nails, Ken. Nails. Yeah. The nails so, that folks use now are, are wire nails. They are. Yeah. And so they're machine, uh, they're basically like poured into a mold, I think. Aren't they? Uh, no, I, they're, they're well. They are, but then they're cut into. They're extruded or something. Yeah, they're yeah. Who knows? Yeah, uh, America. In any case, there's a machine that makes them, and they're yeah. they're very uniform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but before then, that, there were there were um, cut nails. Yep. Where the machine, where they also made with the machine, but it <laughs> cut them out. It cut them out of a, a out of a piece of metal. Yeah, and so so uh, so the, the nails kind of actually have a sort of a, a, a chronology that you can trace. Um, the earliest are these forged nails, so these would be hand hammered. Um, my favorite have the uh, uh, so the the tops of them are what we call rosehead nails, and so they're like basically they've got a bunch of facets on them. Um, and uh, so when you find a rosehead nail, particularly when they're in good condition, they're actually quite beautiful. Um, and the earliest ones actually come to a taper on all four sides because they are sort of hammered down to a point. Um, following that, you get hammered heads on them, uh, but they're cut from a sheet of metal. And so uh, uh, the sides are parallel on two sides, but then they taper on two sides and they have a flat bottom. Then the hammered head disappears. You know what they say, um, Ken, I, as, as Queen once said, it's it's flat bottom nails that make the rock and world go around. Right. It also tells you if the site's before 1850. That's uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the second verse. We didn't. <laughs> that's the second verse. Yeah, uh, it it got cut it uh, when when Queen released it, but uh, it's hard I'm to sure believe. That's, yeah. yeah, um, and so if you still have a hammered head, it's probably early 19th century, um, uh, maybe. Uh, but uh, by the time you have um, uh, cut and tapered shanks with a with a square end. And and a regular round head on them. You're you're in the late 19th century and to the early 20th century, um, and then round nails like contemporary um, uh, sort of industrial made nails probably post date 1890. And so when you find these things, um, they don't necessarily date a site, but they can give you a sense of um, if you find like only forged nails, you're probably looking at a site that was using nails that were produced before 1850. Um, and that can give you an indication of kind of the age of the site. And so a lot of these like Acadian sites that we're talking about and early British place uh, uh, sites will be will be using these hand forged nails. Um, um, kind of interesting stuff. Like we had a, we were working on a transmission job in the Southeast of the province and found uh, there was an old farm property and uh, uh, there's an old forge actually on the property itself. Mm. And uh, uh, in that, excavation we found a number of old nails and what appeared to possibly be saint Ange saint Ange pottery oh really actually cool. so Neat. this uh this farm had probably been around for 
couple hundred years and and may have the forge may have been sitting where where one had been before it so it's kind of cool. very cool yeah the um, um so, so there's there's a couple and, and of, kind of oh yeah go sorry. ahead so i was just gonna say nails are important because they're ubiquitous right so yeah the, the thing about nails you get archaeologists like good sample sizes right yeah <laughs> so yeah there's a lot I of nails a, yeah i applied for a job with a uh uh with the public with parks canada um they had a question and uh that was what would you do with a collection of about a million nails and and what is the sample size that you would retain in a collection it was, it's kind of a... was the correct answer oh no i've been <laughs> sentenced to fort <laughs> to lewisburg to be the yeah. <laughs> um and uh 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 but yeah like so and so so nails can tell you a lot and there's a couple of like sort of reliable uh chronologies that you can use for this um so the national park service in the states actually has this nail chronology it's called as an aid to dating old buildings yeah. um by uh by lee nelson uh parks canada has some stuff on this as well um that uh, nelson but, uh, paper is kind of the classic it's got really good images yeah yeah it does um and actually that uh Acadie, um acadia of the maritimes actually has a really great um sort of small version of that uh uh in their material culture cool and chapter. we'll throw that in the show notes yeah um and so, so the next one is is pipes yeah and so i mean you've got this in the notes as as laying pipes and uh, and i just have to say <laughs> that you know one of one of the finest perhaps archaeological memories i have in the maritimes is uh seeing david wilcox who of course wrote and performed Lane Pipe um, with you, Dave Black, Emily Hubert, and uh, Gary Copeland. Yep, and Jesse my Webb. PhD supervisor. Yeah, yeah, uh, Je and Jesse Webb at the uh, Harvest Jazz and Blues Festival. Uh, yeah. Was that 2019, 2018? Uh, 2020? No, 2019, 2019, I think. 2019, yeah, 2019 yeah, yeah. I think, yep. Yep. Right before yeah, the world ended. That was, that was a lot of fun. Um, it was. Wilcox, I think, was the... The American audience might know him. He was the guitar player in uh, when Ian and Sylvia had a kind of folk rock band called the Gray Speckled Bird. He was their guitar player on a few of their albums. And in Canada, he needs no introduction. Yeah, exactly. But I try to because everybody make this... everybody's doing the Bearcat right now. <laughs> Everyone is doing the Bearcat. Um, well, it's it's summer here, and I don't know they they could be doing the they could be living their riverboat fantasy. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, but we're laying pipe right now, so uh... <laughs> and we're and dating pipes. So you said you said Kevin can pick up a pipe and tell you how old it is. And so what's the <laughs> what's the deal with uh, with pipe pipe chronologies? So basically, the um, what what the issue is? It's the borehole in the pipe stem changes through time. So this is the way... passage through which the smoke would travel, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, the listener will appreciate that Ken approaches the passage of smoke through a pipe almost clinically as if he's never participated in such <laughs> an activity. And um, and so most historical archaeologists will have actually like a set of drill bits that are arranged in a wooden block that yep. can measure um, because, you know, drill bits are arranged in inches. And so uh, Lou Binford, of all people, mostly noted as a, as a pre-contact archaeologist, um, building on an earlier um, realization that that these had changed through time, um, developed a formula that you can use. So you measure the the borehole, 
And then the borehole can be entered into this formula that gives you an estimation of the date. Because basically, there are kind of two factors going on. One is which that the borehole gets smaller through time is the ability to, to make these, basically make these pipes better. Um, uh, basically, people start to make these pipes better, rather. Um, and then the other thing that's happening that's important for understanding why pipes are so common in the archaeological record is that apparently when they would get sort of stoppered up, right? Like the these they're these kind of, they're kind of Gandalf pipes, right? Like you've got the yeah, the bowl yeah, and, is a ways away. Yeah. And so and so for the listener, the reason that you find pipe stems more frequently than mm -hmm. you find pipe bowls is that this like a, a a fresh pipe that came to you from the old world that was shipped across the ocean would be I don't know how long these were originally, but essentially you would break off bits of the the end of the pipe as you went along um, because they would get clogged up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Might, yeah. Yeah. So, Completely, yeah. so they, they were kind of like, um, you know, those fake cigarettes that they used to give us as like Halloween candy. Right. And this, for, for the listener that is under 30, they will, they will not remember this. They, yeah. They used to <laughs> hand out Halloween candy. They were, <laughs> that when I was a kid looked exactly like a cigarette and had red paint on the end of it. So you could pretend you were smoking. Uh, and then they removed the red yeah. end of it and then they got rid of them altogether, but they yeah. came in a little pack that looked exactly like a 20 pack of cigarettes. It mainly um, actually and... just gave us loose Marlboro reds when we trick or treated, but they. <laughs> <laughs> no American spirits. That's a, that's my, that's my favorite American. Well, cigarette. Yeah, I know. I know it is. The, I mean, I grew up in a rural, uh, more rural rather than hipster area perhaps. But... Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, there, there's a we should refer the listener here, I think, to um, Alaric Faulkner and Gretchen Faulkner's book, um, The French of Pentagoet, which is actually a book about Cassine Maine. Um, but it's got some really interesting work on pipe stems. And so, one of the things that the Faulkners did at this great site from the 17th century in Maine. And this, this kind of harkens back to our like Acadian War stuff um, is they really like plotted out in kind of minute detail the way this, you know, Acadian settlement, right, was laid out. Um, and but one of the things that included was a lot of stuff about smoking practices at the at the fort. Um, and so there's a great you know, I, I bet they spent 15 pages describing the uh, surprise they had that the priest was a heavy smoker at this <laughs> at this place in Castine. And I was thinking, you know, I suspect the priest at Castine is still a heavy smoker if I were, <laughs> if I were the priest assigned to Castine. Um, but it's a good book. It was published uh, as a joint uh Joint was not the phrase I meant to use there, perhaps, but the as a as a co-publication between the Maine Archaeological Society and the New Brunswick Museum. Um they, and is they just chipped well that worth. one and left it for later. <laughs> exactly. Um and we and for those of you who are in the industry and looking for kind of an easy easy reference for where you might be able to find what the best way to do this is, um, we're going to put in the show notes as well uh, a paper by Lauren McMillan yeah. from 2016 in uh, the Northeast Historical Archaeology Journal called An Evaluation of Tobacco Pipe Stem Dating Formulas. And so um, she basically kind of evaluates these various different formulas that have been produced by Binford and others um, about how to uh, uh, how to date uh, using pipe stems. Um, yeah. And so so helpful read for those of you and a good uh, good reference if you if you need something to go to. Yeah, and a kind of sneak preview of that is basically that one of the mistakes 
people tend to make is they think they've got one pipe stem. They know the borehole um, size and therefore they can make an inference about the site. Actually for pipe stem dating, because as we were talking about, you just keep breaking off pieces of the pipe, you need a pretty good sample size. So this is yeah. not something you should do with one little piece of pipe. It's something you should be doing with pretty large sample sizes. And uh, McMillan gets into that. Now, now, what makes this much easier, actually, though, is if you have a part of the pipe that retains a stamp. And so yeah. on a number of these pipes, uh, on the stem itself, you'll actually have an indentation, a stamp um, that will tell you um, usually a pretty tight date range, because essentially mm -hmm. with these stamps, you can tie it to specific factories in like Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah. There was one, I can't remember the name of it, but... Um, uh, you know, and you'll have a date of, you know, a few years, basically, maybe 10 to 15 years at most that the pipe was made. And so you can actually tie it back to a particular place in the old country, maybe where this these pipes are being made. Um, and, and also the bowls themselves have chronologies. And so some of them have mm -hmm. rests. So you could actually so some of them have a flat bottom on them. So you could like set the pipe down on a table. Um, you also get effigy pipes. And some of these are, you know, the effigies of like kings or lords. Uh, and different people in Freddie uh, Mercury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, but uh, but basically, those the bowls and the and the uh, and the stamps are are very easy um, uh, chronological markers, basically very diagnostic. Yeah. So, I mean, and so you know, at this point, right? Like the listener, you know. So let let me you know for a moment of real talk here. It's perhaps that the the listener who is listening to an archaeology podcast collects something. Like there's no one that's interested in archaeology that doesn't what do you do you collect things, Ken? Uh I had a I had a ballin bottle cap collection when I was a kid. Exactly. Uh but uh I I don't really collect anything anymore that I can But you have of. the in, you collect books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well I I'm allowed to collect books again now that we don't live <laughs> in an apartment. <laughs> and I and I have multiple spaces in which I can store these books. <laughs> so the listener can't see that Ken has just realized that he now lives in a large house and he can collect bottle caps again. And tomorrow <laughs> we'll be on eBay, you know, ordering, you know, the a 1938, a 1939, a 1940. He doesn't want the 1941. Everyone has that. And a 1942 yeah. Coca-Cola uh, bottle cap. But the I think most archaeologists are they at least understand this instinct of collecting it like having yeah. things that are collected and organized in some way right yeah i had um, a coin collection i guess too oh did you had yeah. yeah so uh in my early 20s i needed money <laughs> <laughs> all right so but anyway well, i guess what we're saying is that the the listener will like understand that in the same way that you approach your baseball card or stamp or coin or whatever collection that historic archaeologists are pretty much approaching things in a similar way right like there is there are these kinds of tells right there are things that you can use to know how old it is or how rare it is yeah um and i i think you know one of the things so i, I admit historical archaeology does not draw me in in the way that pre-contact archaeology does um but that realization, I think, often resonates with students. Yes. They, um, yeah. I'm thinking actually of doing a, I, I often actually do this, this thing with students where I have them empty their pockets, right? Like with their friends and then decide how they would organize the things in their pockets if they were like a museum collection. 
Oh. It's kind of interesting how they do it, right? You know, it's like, sometimes they sort of overthink and they're like, oh, it needs to be a material, but sometimes it's by function, you know, it's kind of interesting. Huh. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually a kind of a fun pedagogical exercise. Yeah, well, it's exclusively a, a pedi- it's, <laughs> it's a, When I hear that phrase, I kind of reach for my revolver, but they... <laughs> it's a little pretentious <laughs> all right so we should keep moving ken because it's um it's uh, uh one in the morning where i am uh <laughs> <laughs> so glass beads um are also a popular trade item um and actually you find these a lot on indigenous sites um uh so these come in a variety of different colors different shapes um the shapes colors and designs of them actually can be classified fairly easily um uh you know a lot of I, th- I believe it was class two a B um, at yeah. the at the um, 17th century site that I worked at um, in the Rouge National Urban Park. Um, these were small red uh, called uh, small redwood style beads, round, yeah. um, single bore, um, some of which had an interior uh, a black um, uh, black rim on them. Yeah, those ones are very and, pretty. Yeah, they are very pretty. Um, you find a lot of red beads in on indigenous sites. Um, purple beads and white beads as well and blue beads um, actually blue beads yeah so i'm colorblind folks so yeah. what i thought were probably purple beads were probably blue beads yeah folks, um, and if, so- listener if you could see kid's shirt you would know he was colorblind <laughs> but they <laughs> i'm a, i'm like a, a bird of paradise when i uh when i in the summer <laughs> like my, my my shirts are all 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 tail feather um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of great references um, that we will put in the show notes uh, are the classification system for glass beads for the use of archaeologists. Uh, that's Kid and Kid. Um, there's also Karklands and Karklands. I think both of these were, or maybe it's just Karklands. And anyway. Um, well, what were you going to say? Well, I, I wondered if it was two husband and wife teams that oh, interesting. different glass beads. I know the kids are husband and wife team. Maybe Karklands is just a Karklund, not not both. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, the, but I also wasn't. Uh, I never used the Karklands one. I always used uh, Kenneth Kid and Martha Kid. Uh, Karklands has better pictures. If I oh, remember well, correctly. well, that would be very useful. Um, the um, but yeah, but anyway, but these these beads are are uh, they're often trade goods, which is useful, you know, for. Thinking about uh, you know interactions between Europeans and indigenous people. Um, so while Ken is looking up the uh, kinship patterns of various bead analysts <laughs> in the region, uh, I'll talk a bit about ceramics. So ceramics are this kind of topic that could fill. Uh, I could be here until you know July third talking about this. The the way everyone actually handles ceramics is that they find one and then they hold it up to a good chronology. And so when we were talking about, I think, uh, how, you know, this kind of collector instinct, right? The My partner collects Fiesta ware, which is a, a recent type of ceramic. And you get a sort of sense for how new or how old various kinds of fiesta wear are. And that's based on the color, which has got to do with the glaze. So the stuff they put on it, it's also got to do with the form of the ceramic. Um, and 
these things are for historical archaeology outlined in things like the St. Mary's University uh, out of Halifax has a database. And then the University of Florida one, I'm really partial. I think the St. Mary's one is about the best. What do you think, Ken? Uh, it's really fantastic. Um, and it's got lots of uh, really great kind of uh, good color photos, um, really good descriptions, um, provides in some cases some uh, um, additional references basically to find um, further information about these. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and what, I remember, so oh, go ahead, sorry. back on the glass beads. Um, <laughs> so Carl, it's his name is Carlos Carklins. That's why I was me messed oh, up about it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So oh, yeah. the 19th century, K, right? Uh, yeah. 19th okay. century Levin catalog and Venetian bead book. Um, and it's, it's, it's really good because the, um, his uh, pictures and sketches in it are, are much more thorough than the, the, um, uh, kid and kid okay so. that's good to know that's good to yeah. know yeah um and and in our notes we mentioned that we should uh we should tell you all about saint Ange ceramics and it's mostly just because these are the oldest ones i think it's sort of cool because they're a french medieval ceramic yeah and so we talked a little bit last week about you know it's it's not like time periods end abruptly you know and so there's no reason that, you know so the medieval period is kind of the end of the pre-contact period right and so but medieval forms persist slightly into this region and so you get um this french medieval form it's a coarse earthenware it's got a copper green glaze it's kind of like you know it when you see it because it's this kind of green chunky ceramic um and you get it on uh, early french sites which is pretty neat um but you know, in, this, in the same way that you could tell if you've got old uh, Fiesta ware, you can sort of tell if you've got old ceramics, you compare it to these sorts of chronologies. Um, and that's helpful. And Ken, I think you knew something about glassware. Uh, yeah, just that. Uh, um, so there are different. So with when it comes to glassware, there are a couple of different classes. So there's flat glass um, and bottle glass or vessel glass. Um, and, uh, so what you would flat glass is probably window panes and that sort of thing. Um, and the thicknesses of these and the, um, staining on them can give you an indication of, uh, when they would, might've been produced. Um, and so I, I can't remember what the, it's magnesium. Is that correct? I don't or know. Manganese, manganese staining. Um, so if there's an iridescence, so there's sort of a rainbow iridescence on the glass, they're older because, I believe it's manganese that was included in the glass making process. Okay, um, cool. And uh, hopefully someone listener, is waiting to write in. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that uh, I might get uh, my, my friend Miriam, who I worked with at Parks Canada, who is like yeah, a historic great, yeah. material culture expert. Um, uh, I'll get her to review the episode and see how much we screwed up. And uh, maybe we'll get her on the show to write to, <laughs> to, to correct us on a lot this of is, things. This is how, listen, this is how we do a three-hour episode that needs a six-hour rejoinder with an actual <laughs> yeah. uh, professional in historical archaeology. Um, and, and just that uh, most glassware on the, uh, the base of like bottles, for example, or vessel glass is, uh, will have a stamp of some kind um, or patterning. Um, and also like the necks and the um, and the tops of bottles will give you some indication of when they might have been produced, where they might have been produced. Um, and again, same with um, with uh, with some ceramic pipes using um, embossings on the base of glasses. You can actually sometimes find a factory. Uh, so, you know, the specific location where something might have been produced for a certain period of time, which is always kind of pretty fascinating. 
Cool. Yeah. So I, had a, I my my favorite glass bottle story is a case bottle that I found on a uh, we were doing a survey in northern British Columbia uh, summer uh, that I spent a field season out in northern BC, and uh, um, we found a, a small clearing. So we had found a number of culturally modified trees. So these would have been like these are um, would have had indigenous groups would come in and scrape the cambium for sort of a mobile food source. But then we found a blaze trail, which led down by a marsh. So what's and on a the blaze last, trail? Uh, so blaze trail is basically you chop with an ax or a sharp object onto a tree and you leave a small scar on the tree. Um, usually so it's a navigation. blazes are the CMTs? No, CMTs are different from a blaze. So CMTs are uh, larger. Right. Um, they can be a couple feet long, um, but and that essentially the bark would be peeled off and there's a layer below the bark called cambium has almost a minty flavor to it. A lot of the lodgepole pines in Northern BC. Um, and the cambium was chewed as sort of a mobile food source when groups were out oh, cool. like hunting, for example, or trapping. Um, and uh, uh, blaze trails were smaller marks made on trees where you cut into the bark, usually to leave a small scar that's probably about six inches long, a couple inches wide. Um, so like 25 centimeters long. You know, uh, right, right, uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. About a mile and a half wide. Yeah, mile and a half wide. Um, yeah. And those would scale, be scale this down for us, Wesley. So, so you can look down once you find a blaze trail and you get the angle that it's going at. You can actually step aside and look through the forest and see blazes all the way down through the forest, which is really fascinating. Oh, cool. Anyway, one of these blaze trails led to a tree um, that had a very large scar on it um, right beside a marsh. And in the scar, there was actually written in cursive in pencil a message that said, all we could see was my poor sir and a, and a part that was obscured by the, the, it had grown back in 1880 something. So there was a date from the late 19th century and this was written in cursive. And at the base of that tree, there was a small clearing and we pulled, pulled back the sod and found a bunch of small bird bones that had been burned and a broken bottle, um, hmm. a case bottle and uh so, so a case bottle so a case bottle is a small square bottle um sometimes uh the so in the in the 19th and early 20th century they had a lot of these like snake oil salesmen um, right. who were selling elixirs of various things most of them had like cocaine uh uh you know uh uh lead uh what's the uh, what uh, arsenic all sorts of different <laughs> stuff in them see when when you um, said case bottle i i i imagined it was the one that you you usually brought in the field it was just in your backpack which was just in case <laughs> well no so so a case bottle i think they're called case bottles because they were rectangular and they were like meant to be lined up in a case oh i see like you could fit them together in like your bag or your yeah yeah suitcase. and so yeah. so the the anyway so we get back to the lab my my uh, the which the, boss the listener time. will appreciate that the kids lab was was it in a lingerie store or over a lingerie it was beside store? the lingerie store. oh beside so, the lingerie store. yeah so the, so the guy that owned my company uh norm canyon well actually norcan consulting i think they're still in business now he owned a his his uh, partner owned a lingerie shop which is attached to the crm company um and so where ken got his shirt <laughs> <laughs> uh and so so i took the case bottle and i built it back together and, and it was this product called Hamlin's Wizard Oil, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, and to give you a sense of what's in Hamlin's Wizard Oil, uh, so this stuff was produced uh, first produced in 1861 in Chicago. Their slogan is "There is no sore, it will not heal; no pain, it will not subdue." 
and the ingredients include uh oh, i looked this up uh camphor ammonia chloroform sassafras cloves and turpentine with oh, 50 yeah. to 70 percent alcohol <laughs> well, could the be used internally and topically <laughs> so our theory was that um uh there was uh probably a settler out there trapping with an indigenous guide who somebody who had who had been with him who had learned had enough education that um knew how to write in cursive something had happened to the trapper the my poor sir uh right. and he was given they had a you know caught a couple partridges consumed them on site um and then he drank an entire bottle of hamlin's wizard oil and is probably his body was in that marsh that's is what we what we figured yikes but his HPV two was completely resolved. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, um, all right. Okay, so, so let's let's get to a couple. Sites? Yeah, a couple specific case studies of historical archaeology in New Brunswick. So the the best one, and, and you know, this is impressive too, because it's you know you always want to say like Dave Black's most interesting work is pre-contact, which it is, but he's a he's pretty good at uh, historic archaeology too. I don't think you got you got too caught up in this, but the um, I'm saving the best part for last year, listener. But the so so basically on the Bliss Islands, Dave Black and Chris Blair, um, went and excavated at Sam Bliss's homestead, and it's sort of interesting. Bliss's uh, biography is reasonably well known. Like they sort of know him as a kind of loyalist guy, right? Um, but they got interested in the idea of Sam Bliss, kind of in terms of everyday life, and so. I think there's one thing that's immediately interesting about this study is that Dave um, had done so much work on indigenous occupations in the Bliss Islands that you automatically have a way to compare the way a European lives in the Bliss Islands around this time in, in the Loyalist period to the way indigenous people were living there. So you get this ability that, uh, that Chris and Dave, they contrast Loyalist life ways with indigenous ones in a similar environment. And so one of the things they note is that um, although indigenous peoples regularly exploited both deer and seals, the blisses don't appear to have. And so instead, uh, we have to confront this uh, this you know comforting idea that there's uh, culture, right? So there's the the stuff that indigenous people and that Euro Canadians uh, are eating out there are different, and I think that's pretty interesting about this. Uh, but one of the other things is that. Uh, Sam Bliss appears to have had a cannon. You know, oh. this is this real stand your ground kind of uh, uh, attitude about this. You know, I mean, you, you know, you can you can take the boy out of America, even if he's a loyalist, but you can't take the America out of the boy. And uh, and he had a cannon. And uh, not only did he have a cannon, he had bar shot. You know, so he could he could if you rolled up and you uh, were I guess sailing, he was going to shoot his bar shot into your. Uh, Huh. your mast and rigging and screw it all up so bar shots basically it's kind of it looks like um uh what's the the piercing uh it's like old-timey shrapnel isn't it yeah it's like old-timey shrapnel i think it looks like the 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 lady listener of a certain age will know this piercing called an industrial which is like a bar with two balls at either end it goes through the the top piercing of your ear. through the top of your ear yeah it yeah. clicks clicks the two bars together uh, anyway it looks like that um, I realized that <laughs> I, I love Ken. I pretend that we have lady listeners. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, the uh, anyway, it looks like that, and it would it would kind of screw up the the rigging and any kind of vessel under sail that came towards them. Um, and David Chris kind of discussed this, and you know, it's pretty interesting the idea of a self defense cannon. Yeah, um, which I think is really cool. And then you were going to talk about blockhouses and Martello Towers, I think. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, so the so actually, I, first I'm going to talk about Moncton because we talked about Moncton oh, okay. earlier yeah, yeah. in the show. Great. Um, and so uh, in 2006, archaeologists with the province actually um, uh, recovered a number of musket balls and some other material, some flints. Uh, and did some science scan sonar work uh, to discover what was likely the location of a historically documented um, skirmish between um, uh, Moncton during his uh, St. John River campaign of 1758 and uh, 50, uh, 79, oh, right. or 59, cool. sorry. Um, uh, Moncton, who by all accounts is a pretty awful human being, um, uh, a lot of violent conflicts. Um, he and the the British were sort of practicing a scorched earth policy with uh, Acadian settlements as they made their way up the Wolostog. Um, and uh, in this particular um, situation, uh, Moncton sort of has kind of this notation about uh, a, a skirmish in which they didn't sort of fare all that well. Um, mm -hmm. But what it looks like is that probably that the boat was sunk. Um, there's a number of like the musket balls and the other material is probably a combination of French and indigenous groups that sort of raided um, or, or um, uh, sort of uh, maybe, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, it's a sensitive time for the submersible community, so I think we should be we should be cautious in how we approach this. Uh, military sneak up. What what was? Why can't I think of this word? I think military sneak up is an ambush. Ambush. There we go. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is the great thing, listener. It's it's the the many conversations with Ken actually are crossword puzzles. <laughs> he was auditioning recently for the for the Wheel of Fortune thing, but uh, apparently I, he did I, not I make tried it. for years to get on Jeopardy, but they won't take. Oh, me. did you really? Oh yeah, yeah. I've gone through the application thing. It's it's really hard actually. So oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, so kind of interesting uh, material culture stuff there, but then also, um, uh, some of the evidence of this sort of period of warfare in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries are uh, buildings such as blockhouses. So these were built in the 18th century, usually by the British as part of defensive structures. Uh, when we say they're blockhouses, they're like, they look like essentially two squares on top of each other, um, smaller square, and then a bigger square on top of it. Um, uh, and you'll have- There's the a bunch of these still standing, you can visit. Yeah, yeah. And so the only one left standing in New Brunswick is in St. Andrews, but it's a national historic site, well-maintained. You can go and tour around with it, very good shape. Um, St. Andrews is obviously a lovely place to go visit as well. Yeah. Um, and By a bunch, I guess I was revealed. There's a bunch in Maine too. You can visit. Oh yes, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's the New Brunswick Archaeology Project. Yeah, yeah. sorry, let's, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it um, is. I mean, we've been checked the email. I mean, since we've been talking, there may have been more that came in. We could have a big winner. The, that's true. We could. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're, we're not live casting this yet, though. We're not on Twitch. Oh, can you imagine how stressful that would be? That would be very stressful, actually. Yeah. Um, it would mean less editing, but probably fewer <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Um, and then I also mentioned earlier the uh, uh, in our in our prize read about the St. John fortifications. So this was basically defensive structure system that was built around the city of St. John. Um, one of the and it was built during the uh, War of eighteen twelve. That's where a lot of these structures came from. So the blockhouse in St. Andrews 
was built in 1813 as part of uh, War of 1812 um, structures where the uh, British North America was concerned about uh, about the Yankees uh, making their way across the border. There were some skirmishes actually along the main New Brunswick border. I can't remember what the name of it was, but oh, uh, the Aristic War and all that stuff. Aristic yeah. War. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And I hate to tell you, some men who's gone through immigration, they they are still worried about Yankees sneaking across the border. The uh, <laughs> fairly the the yeah, all sorts of things. The I thought it was sort of interesting. The uh, all the blood tests they did. You know, once I was an assistant professor, but that they'd failed to do when I was a, but a humble graduate student here on a study permit and could have really been infecting the province. With there you go. Whatever it was I had. Um, and so among these fortifications in St. John, probably the most famous is the Carlton Martello Tower. Um, like I said earlier, it was built uh, uh, just in time for the end of the war, but um, served <laughs> to garrison inactive troops for several, uh, for, for a couple hundred years afterwards. Um, I've had the opportunity to actually work there twice. Um, once I was monitoring some natural gas pipeline installation on the sidewalk. Another time I was looking for um, the signalman. So it served as a signal tower actually for oh, boats cool. coming in and out of the St. John Harbor at one time. Um, and actually, I think we, on the, uh, that excavation, I actually think we found the signalman's house. Oh, really? Um, really fascinating. We actually found the kitchen, I think too. Um, just the edge of it in one of the test pits. Found some really cool like oh, utilitarian cool. stuff, like some uh, Dutch coins and uh, um, uh, uh, brass pins from the lowlands. Is that but, a park's um, job? That was a park's job. Uh, but the... the uh, Write that up. When, when I was... Uh, I should, yeah. I, I mean, I will eventually. But right. uh, um, when I work there... Which, do you have some other writing project that's urgent? There's there's some writing <laughs> going on right now that's uh, a little bit uh, ahead of... Uh, a little bit ahead in the, the docket. But uh, so... Probably one of the quirkiest things I've ever found in archaeology was when I was monitoring at the Martello Tower for this natural gas pipeline installation under the sidewalk. So um, ballast, which is uh, basically um, usually European flint and rocks that were filled in the front of ships that would come over from the old country. They'd come over empty and the ballast would weigh the ship down on their way over. And so the British were bringing ships over. And then they would fill them up with furs and all sorts of other products from the new world, tobacco, all sorts of other things, and then send them back to England. But to on their journey to the new world, uh, they needed some weight in them. So they filled them with ballast and ballast was, you know, tended to be basically rocks that they could pick up along the shoreline. And so one of the things that you find in um, coastal areas where there are sort of uh, uh, would have been like ports, ports of call by Brit uh, um, colonial ships, you find along the shoreline, um, pebbles of uh, flint that comes from parts of England and, and coastal France. Um, and in at the Martello Tower, uh, because it's on this point of land in the city of St. John, uh, very rocky, it's all bedrock outcrop there. Um, the, these, this ballast was used throughout the city as fill, basically, to level out surfaces on on uneven terrain. And so they must've done the same thing at Martello Tower. And so there's this whole layer that we hit probably about 10 centimeters thick of just European ballast flint. And so I collected a sample of it because it's kind of interesting because it's like a building event basically, right? It kind of yeah. indicated probably something associated with the Martello Tower construction And the rocks itself. look cool too. I mean, like they're- And the lock, yeah, they're beautiful. They stand right? out. Some, yeah. some of them are like set up the brilliant blue or black or this caramel color. Um, and among them, was I, I picked up a piece and I was like, holy crap, this looks like a scraper. And I did a little bit of research and I think this is actually a Mesolithic scraper. So uh, the Mesolithic period, 
is about I think twenty thousand years ago. Well, it's before the Neolithic, so it's um, before ten ten k. Yeah. So yeah. So about between ten and probably twenty thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, and this fit kind of a hafted Mesolithic scraper. That's great. It was probably at a site that had been essentially scooped up and thrown into the front of a ship and boated across the ocean. You should write um, that up somewhere too. Yeah. So I I have I, I'm sure there's pictures of this in the report that I did. Um, and and the and it should be at uh in on the shelves at Arc Services at the New Brunswick. Yeah, yeah. Um, arc branch but uh but anyway kind of a kind of a funny story but uh, yeah 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 no well worth writing up i think I, but that's a great story yeah um and and it's uh cool that you can visit these sites right you can yeah see these block yeah. houses you can you can do all that and so a lot um, of these forts that we've talked about and these uh fortifications these sort of colonial structures um uh you know i kind of made an insinuation that the national historic sites program was really focused on a lot of these um early canadian uh nation building yeah uh, uh you know structures basically right um you know more and more there are indigenous sites that are being named national historic sites but certainly that mm -hmm. was the focus of the program early on but as a result of that um in canada is not really great about heritage preservation um but they have done a pretty good job at preserving and protecting forts, yeah, they and, love forts. and 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 military infrastructure uh, yeah. of the of the colonial wars yeah so. and actually Kenneth, as we're talking about this it's, we, we should do a, a probably an episode on legislation at some point yes well we which, will in season two yeah in season two yeah which um i will find mind-numbingly boring but i think you'll find interesting the the, the listener doesn't know that so so ken and i along with our colleague trevor dow are working on a, a legislative thing and uh, paper that involves legislation. And so I had first tab the, so we had revisions on the paper. Uh, I had first tab on it and um, was glad I had first tab because it meant that I could color code the edits that the reviewer had sent us. And it meant that I got to tackle the ones that I wanted to deal with, which were uh, primarily grammatical. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, the the, the nuances of, of archaeological legislation in Canada, I could leave uh, in the in the uh, confident hands of, of Ken and Trevor. So, Ken, but speaking of, you know, sometimes a man makes an error and he makes a promise he can't deliver on. We uh, we I guess last episode, we we're going to talk about the St. Lawrence Iroquois. <laughs> <laughs> so and, do we do we want to? Do we want to make a special episode of maybe a short episode about indigenous groups in the historic period? I think we probably do. Yeah. Because because we've we've given this very short shrift in this episode, even though it's the most interesting yes. part of this, I think. I'm the you know, Ken McBride, the historical archaeologist who I've worked with the most, uh, once told me he said, uh, historical archaeology is actually only interesting when there are indigenous people involved, <laughs> which so, is pretty accurate. Yeah, so so an episode that we actually didn't think was going to go that long has gone on for a while, and so maybe this will be the the colonial history of the historical record, and then we'll talk about the indigenous historical record uh, in a bonus episode. I think it's a great idea. So we're we're going to do a, a little teaser here. I'll set it up. Cartier finds Iroquoians. 
that's that's a teaser that, that that's a teaser yeah, yeah so for the second episode in a row we're uh, <laughs> promising to t- talk about the saint lawrence of your Corinth, <laughs> but we're going to kick that can down yeah. another uh uh another uh uh fortnight and yeah, the listener uh, can't see that i actually do have notes on this but they're scribble on the back of the chords for a sam cook song <laughs> i don't know why that would be <laughs> um so does that mean we're we're at hit pieces uh no i gotta do devil's head real quick you don't want to save that for uh no so devil's head well it, it, we did the part of devil's head last time but this one's got smuggling involved oh okay okay so let's wrap up on smugglers yeah so anyway so uh devil's head which we talked about uh has, is a important protostork site in my opinion uh basically on the St. Croix river pretty close to Callis. um john fable who was a student of mine uh, got interested in the ceramic assemblage there, the historic ceramic assemblage, and those ceramics dated uh, to um, a period that was like basically the early 1800s. And so there's a, a kind of thing historical archaeologists use called mean ceramic dating. And what this is, you take the basically average dates of manufacture of a series of ceramics that you find you adjust that date to come up with a sort of shared average, and that gives you an approximate date. There's a thing called time lag, which sometimes means that at peripheral areas, the ceramics will be um, more, uh, so because they're sort of in the hinterlands, you'll have older stuff, but actually it's more recent. And we obviously, as we're getting to site, could not say for certain that we thought the ceramics date to 1810, but because of this rich historic record, um, John said, wouldn't it be interesting if this fellow Ebenezer Ball, who was a counterfeiter, uh, who was encountered at Devil's Head by a surveyor, uh, and in 1810, he tried to pay off the surveyor. That didn't work. The surveyor reported <laughs> him anyway. Promptly, the, the local gendarme came out. Uh, Ebenezer Ball shot a cop. He said, oh, that was a mistake. My gun just went off, uh, which is a little hard to do, I, my understanding is, with a gun in 1810, unless it's really <laughs> ready to go, right? You know, I mean, this is, you know, they, uh, yeah, I cocked it, and then it, then it just went off. Um, they also didn't aim very well. So, like, the, yeah. you know, to, to hit the cop, you have to have really been working at it. Yeah, anyway, so he shoots the cop, and he gets hanged a year later in Castine. Um, and so, really, we have no idea if the smugglers you know, you know, people that were smuggling ceramics. That's one of the other things John found at the site was that there were all these ceramics from Europe that really should not have been in the United States. <laughs> they were clearly coming in through Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's all sorts of sort of circumstantial evidence that this fellow Ebenezer Ball was hanging out at Devil's Head, um, you know, smuggling, eating out of basically like bachelor dishes, you know, there's a bit of time lag going on with these, with these things. Um, and, but one of the things I think is interesting just to kind of like go full circle on what we're talking about is that one of the other areas that historic archaeology can inform on is these kind of illicit economies, right? There's all sorts of things in historical archaeology that are the kinds of economies that are not necessarily well accounted for in like insurance records right Right. you're not insuring your counterfeiting operation so you can just check this out um 
and uh, and John did a real good job on this paper. It's in the main Arc Society uh, bulletin, and we'll put it in the show notes. Excellent. But Ken, I think we are at hit pieces after that. We are at hit pieces. what we talked about when we started the episode i think yeah so we had some listener mail uh and so i mentioned that we had a reddit account and so i created a reddit account to kind of you know shop the show a little bit more and we got feedback almost immediately from another podcast and uh so the hit piece today is we want to highlight a podcast uh uh screens of the stone age um Mm -hmm. which is hosted by joshua lindell and i'm just out in winnipeg right uh who's out of university of winnipeg um, he's an archaeologist and a paleoanthropologist, and he also has two co-hosts. I just wanted to bring them up right now. Um, and essentially, their uh, their podcast is uh, that they they review um, movies with a quasi archaeological or paleoanthropological <laughs> theme to them, uh, and uh, and and just kind of hash it all out. And so it's it's uh, Joshua Lindell, Dr. Kimberly Plomp and Dr. Ross Barnett. Um, they they are also a fortnightly podcast. Um, and uh, so they are sponsored by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Um, fantastic logo and actually a really kind of uh, uh, fascinating library of movies that they've accumulated there. Yeah. And, and our hit piece ties in with actually some promo for ourselves and for, for Josh and, and his co-hosts uh, that uh, Gabe and I will be appearing on an episode of uh, screens of the stone age uh in august to to review uh an indiana jones movie Christ- i believe we're doing crystal skull are we not kingdom of the crystal skull yeah yeah the yes. uh you, we we know we're the, we the worst <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> the worst indiana jones movie um but but with that um well so, so far we haven't seen uh yeah yeah so uh, but that, that's neat but we will be and we will and be so this, this episode will be dropping probably either um june 29th or 30th um leading into the canada day long weekend or the america is is it a full long weekend in america or we, we don't call it, it like america everybody goes day. back to we work for monday July, but yeah. yeah does so does everybody go to work on monday and gets tuesday off or is the monday the day in lieu that's a great question um I don't remember how that works. Hmm. You've been away for a while, Gabe. I've been away for a while. I mean, this is the uh, you know, just to return to the theme of of light substance abuse we discussed in this in this episode. The the I only ever smoke a cigar if I'm in Canada on the fourth of July. Oh I smoke a gigantic Cuban or with, cigar. Or when you're with me. But that's usually on the fourth of July. So <laughs> <laughs> the uh yeah, so I don't I don't know how the rules work uh, yeah. anymore. Either I'm way, the, yeah. Either way, um, this coming weekend, Dial of Destiny, which is the new Indiana Jones movie, yeah, is being yeah. released. And and for the listener who has stuck through this historical archaeology podcast, <laughs> uh, we're gonna dust a little. One of our special episodes coming up in the next few weeks is going to be Gabe and I are going to provide you with an exclusive review of an archaeologist's perspective of Dial of Destiny, and it will be greatly influenced by 
by both of our thorough enjoyment of the Indiana Jones series. Yeah. Uh, so this will be a totally biased review um, uh, where we we might we might pick it apart to a certain degree. Um, but uh, I, I I will admit to being really thrilled about seeing this. Oh, me too. I mean, the uh, so so uh, Mrs. Dr. Ronick and I already have tickets to see this at Chunky Cinema Pub. And uh, which which I checked to make sure that was what it was called. Um, and uh, but you know the I'm sort of loath to admit this even ahead of our review. But the I even enjoyed the Crystal Skull one the first time I saw it. It was really the second time I saw it that I thought, oh, that was not very good. I I remember seeing it in theaters and being like just happy to see another Indiana Jones movie. Me too. And then but, it yeah, the second the time I watched it, the refrigerator scene, I was just like, oh, I, I, there was a few. They jumped the shark on a few things there that I think that. Had they cut out the last scene with the aliens and had they, maybe I'm giving up too much here. Uh, but, uh, but my, my thoughts are that they, there were some things that they did in the other movies that they kind of tipped their hat at, but yes. didn't show inside the hat, you know? Right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in the crystal in skull, the hat was just, a fedora. Yeah. Yeah. The inside the fedora was aliens. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll have a more developed thought about this when we appear on screens of the Stone Age. Exactly, and and uh, and yeah. So stay tuned for the the Dial of Destiny review, um, and uh, and we'll keep you apprised of when we appear on screens of the Stone Age. But we encourage you to take a listen. They yeah. uh, uh, and actually they've got an episode up where they reviewed um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Uh, uh, Josh is unconvinced that he he had never actually seen um, uh, uh, an Indiana Jones movie before watching this which is actually incredible that is incredible um, yeah uh but uh they they pick up some 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 rather problematic um history about uh the <laughs> the marion character yeah we're I really think... just surprised girl she was 15 during at least in the conception of uh yeah of of uh her relationship with uh dr jones yeah so um and so so that's that's the only hit piece we have for this week but one of the things that i wanted to um, I thought was a good spot for it, was that we want to thank the listeners, um, all 2,231 of yeah. you. Uh, we have, we crossed the 2,000 listen threshold and uh, it is really incredible for us to see uh, the engagement that we've had and um, and to see that our listenership is growing and we really appreciate you tuning in bi-weekly, uh, fortnightly, um, and, and for telling your friends and for those of you who are new listeners, whether you're picking us up and listening out of order or whoever you're finding us, uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, and we would, we would, you know, ask that you, uh, uh, you know, find us on Instagram, find us on Reddit, um, email us, uh, hit subscribe to the show, subscribe on Spotify or Apple music, wherever you find us. Um, but, uh, but we, it's, it's really exciting to, to see those numbers tick up and to see the engagement with, uh, with what's going on here. So, um, just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, I completely agree. We're having a lot of fun, um, and uh, I the I always look forward to the when Ken uh, reads the listener mail to us. That's always a lot of fun. The uh, yeah, the listener may have noticed that w- we do that live. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, and and again, apologies to all of you who have sent emails. You will get a reply. I just I read these live, and then I completely forget to check it for two weeks, basically. So. <laughs> And we will get your stickers eventually too. That's the, yes. that's the other thing. Yeah. Um, Everyone is owed stickers. So. Uh, yeah, many people are owed stickers at this point. Um, and feel free to remind us if we haven't gotten you your stickers. Uh, well, Ken, I think we're maybe looking at a half-finished bottle of Covassier. 
I think so. And uh, and a long weekend ahead. Uh, what holiday is it? Canada Day. Oh, right. Pre-4th of July. Pre-4th of July. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so what? So you could do a cross-border thing where you get Monday as the holiday in lieu, and then you have Tuesday as the as America's holiday. Yeah, the cross-border thing that I always do is that I go into the field to miss Canada right. Day here, to be yeah. in the field for the 4th of July, laying in grid nervously before the students arrive on July 5th. Right, right. That's my approach. Yep. Yeah. But you're it, stirring, for the for the listener that doesn't know Gabe in the field, the fr- I went out and visited him. My, my partner and I uh, went to the field. Uh, uh, my wife and I went out. Uh, this is before we were married. And and after spending much of the afternoon after trying to find a, a a probably like six centimeter long fragment of orange flagging <laughs> tape buried inside of a tree, we eventually found uh, uh, Gabe's Gabe's uh, campsite or or uh, cottage that he was staying at for the. And for I was renting from Deepak Chopra's attorney. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I walk inside and Gabe has a, I would say, what, 30 gallon tub and a large wooden ladle stirring the mix for mint juleps, which uh, which led to some some incredibly challenging mapping exercise in the morning. <laughs> But yeah, we, we try to live fairly comfortably on the Down East uh, Main Archaeological Field School. <laughs> yeah, so the salt air didn't help me that day. By any yeah, means. yeah, no, well, it's because we're getting older, Ken. The Curry uh... Saber is on warning, which means that we've probably exceeded the uh, the hour-long episode that we had hoped to provide to the listener. I think it is. It's uh, it's uh, 1.35 here in New Brunswick, which means it's time for Ken to ice his dongle. So thank you very much, listener, for tuning in. And we will see you approximately next fortnight again so we apologize in advance for not keeping our regular schedule uh, but we're gonna we're gonna do our best to get out uh some kind of episode approximately every two weeks so yeah we will be in touch and we hope that you're gonna have as much fun this summer as we're planning on having or sorry i should say as i'm planning on having because ken is getting ready to defend his dissertation so at some point this summer listener you'll be dealing with uh one dr holyoke um and who knows well, this fall shirts. is that when they officially give you the officially thing? it's like november is when i went and get my degree so oh is it okay yeah um well either way there'll be a doctor in the house at some point uh and uh and i will be clutching my chest in anguish just waiting for ken to check in <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and 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 in the interim too we would encourage you if you're going to see dial of destiny uh Send us an email or tag us on Instagram with your like with your review. I would love to hear listener feedback on on the new Indiana Jones movie. Me too. We'd also would love to hear your review of our review. Yes. Um, because Cause, because cause we have a YouTube channel now. And I feel oh, like Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Plug the YouTube channel for a second. Oh yeah. So we have a YouTube channel now, and I believe it is hold on. Yeah. So so what what so the listener we'll realize that this is not a visual thing, but if you want to listen to us on YouTube, that's doable. And we may at some point post video, I guess. Um, yes. Chunky Cinema Pub apparently is not willing to put a camera behind me uh, and Mrs. Dr. Reinick while we, uh, while we video ourselves talking about the new Indiana Jones movie. Um, oh, so our handle is youtube.com slash at uh, NB Archaeology. 
Um, and we're hoping that it's, so it's capital N, capital B, capital A, recology, uh, archaeology. Um, so what our hoping, what a, my hope was is that the at NBA part of that will actually get a whole bunch of people to our channel um, mistakenly. Yeah. But right now we're sitting at one view on, the, oh no, five, five. Oh. oh no, actually we've ticked up. Oh my goodness. Wait, so as, yeah. how, what we are we have, at then? We are at 10. I think somebody's watching us right now. Oh no, that was just my pen, my <laughs> mouse is over that. Uh, we're at like 16 views on YouTube. Wow. I hope they weren't disappointed that there was nothing to see. Yeah. That it was so always to listen to. Yeah. So if you're one of those people that subscribes to YouTube Premium, uh, you can actually play this and lock your phone and, and listen to it while you're walking around. Um, oh, if those of you don't su subscribe to YouTube Premium, you will have to open the video, which is actually just a, it has the sound um, lines at the bottom of the screen yeah. and uh, and our logo. So but yeah, so you will not be able to see Ken's shirt. It, I think the other problem was, Ken, that we're only allowed to upload to YouTube episodes that are sh shorter than an hour. Under two hours. And so we are, are we going to make we it if we scrape in, we might scrape in on this one, but there are a couple of episodes that I have to figure out how we, how we post those. Um, All right. So if you see a gap in the chronology of episodes, um, in particular, I know for sure Late Woodland was one of the ones that went over two hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so, Hard yeah, so if you if you if you notice that on the YouTube channel, that's not uh, that's not an issue. That's something we are resolving. But uh, but yeah. So another way to engage with the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast is on YouTube. And eventually you might get to see our pretty faces every fortnight. You might, um, but technology is what it is, listener. And uh, it's really, it's Ken's shirt you want to see more than anything else, I think. <laughs> so, well, we are looking at a half-finished bottle of Cognac Covassier. And uh, it's been a pleasure, Ken, as always. It's been a pleasure, listener. Uh, we don't know much about history, but uh, we hope that you do now. And we're looking forward to uh, talking to you in about a fortnight, probably about the Dial of Destiny. I think so. All right, listener. Uh, good morning here. Good night from Lethbridge. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks, listener. Good night.